Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash G-O-M. Here you are. Champion's purse. Though, you're not the champion yet, are you? A true champion defeats all the challengers. Surely there are others out there who still dare to challenge my reign? Uncle. How about you? I'm, I'm sure they have a spare costume. <laughs> One taste of combat was enough for me, Your Grace. I would like to keep what remains of my face. I think you should fight him. This was but a poor imitation of your own bravery on the field of battle. I speak as a first-hand witness. Climb down from the high table with your new Valerian sword and show everyone how a true king wins his throne. Be careful, though. This one is clearly mad with lust. It would be a tragedy for the king to lose his virtue hours before his wedding night. Well met, Sans and albino Targaryen bastards, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, son of the Revolution, and I'm here with Lady Rachel of House Fox. How are you, my lady? I am fantastic, Duncan. How are you? I'm great, and this is episode 74. On this episode of our series rewatch, we're covering Game of Thrones season 4, episode 2, The Lion and the Rose. And if you don't already know this, this is a spoiler-filled podcast from the perspective of someone who's current on the TV show. That means you've seen all the way up through season seven. So if not, there's still time to drink some of the Strangler so you don't have to hear any of these spoilers. Warning. 
Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Finally. Right? Right? (laughs) (laughs) The one true king of Westeros is dead. It's just the saddest day in Westeros history. The seven gods. Oh my gosh, there's so much that happens in this episode. I mean, my notes are like five pages long. Yeah, I've got quite a bit of notes too. Let's uh, jump right into it, I guess. What do you, what's your, your number five? Let's see. My number five is the Warden of the North. Ooh. So I enjoyed watching Roos and Ramsey, which, you know, I guess reconnect because they're father and son, but this is the first time as a viewer that we see them together and see their dynamic. True. Yeah, so I loved it. I loved Ramsey's face when he saw his dad's bride. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Fat Walda. Yes, Fat Walda. <laughs> and... um just kind of their whole dialogue from when he meets Walda all the way to when he talks about taking the moat and I'll reconsider your position. So Right. He's like teasing him with you're not a Bolton, you're a bastard, remember? Ramsey yes. Walda, this is Ramsey, my bastard. Like he repeatedly and then like uh he's getting him mad and mad and mad to the point where he's like, Oh well, if you do this successfully, maybe you could, you know, take the family name and he's gonna do fucking anything to get that, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I think where that kind of, I think that paradigm kind of shifted for Roos actually in this scene because when Ramsey goes to sit down to get a shave by Reek and Reek goes to grab the razor and Roos kind of hesitates for a second and Ramsey goes, what does it matter? I'm not a Bolton. Right. And then Roos just kind of like nods his head So I think in that moment, it might have put the idea that, oh, you know, he is my my bastard, but I don't want him dead because he's (laughs) my only heir, like if anything really were to happen to me. So, you know, at the beginning of the scene, he was really digging into Ramsey. Well, you're a snow, you're not a Bolton and it's my banners and it's not yours. And, you know, you totally acted out of turn. And then at the end. He was like, you know, if you take the moat for the family, I'll reconsider your position. Right. And it wasn't till uh, the knife was at his neck, basically, like you're saying, that he uh, sort of had a change of conscience about Ramsey's status. And uh, before that, bringing in Reek, who's no longer Theon, basically, and seeing how messed up he was, that just made him even more mad at Ramsey because he's like, you damaged our prized goods. You know, we need this for trading capabilities, basically for leverage. And what have you done to him? And he, um, Roos even says to Ramsey at the very beginning of this set of scenes is where's your prize? Right. Yeah. With the hounds. Totally dehumanized. I'll have a look at him. Yeah. So, um, I, just enjoyed listening to Roos talking about the northern armies are trapped south of the neck. It kind of reminded me of Ned losing his head in the south. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. And then... Um, Got a glimpse of the map, too, when we were talking about it. Yes. So you get a little bit of geography. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I just liked their dynamic. I mean, it's clearly a strained relationship, but there's mutual respect, a father son type of dynamic, of course. And, you know, strategy, like Ramsey going toe to toe with his dad. He's like, you made me acting Lord of the Dreadfort. I acted. Yep. Like, yeah, that was why are you upset at me about that? You know, it's like, yeah, what, your, you your, your balls me. drop off or something? <laughs> so I I also like that this is the start of kind of Locke's bigger story arc. I right. Mean, His transition to the north. Yeah. I mean, he's had a big, he had a big role to play in Jamie's arc, obviously taking off his hand. But we really don't know much about Locke. And I think this is kind of the start of his, you know, going up to the wall, taking the vows to go with Craster and playing kind of that role. So this is kind of where he starts that story arc. Yep, definitely. He's got a mission at this point and uh, Jon Snow's got to watch out. We know he doesn't live long enough to carry it out though. So <laughs> That's, that's, true. Funny. that's true. Did you notice the line where Ram uh, Roos said, I had to smuggle myself into my own lands thanks to the Greyjoys? Yes, What's up with I that? Did. Um... The Greyjoys are already wilding out up north. Well, they're they hold Moat Kalen oh, right now. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, of course. Because that's you know the role that Rake is going to play. He's going to dress up as Theon Greyjoy, carry the white flag in there. So I think Roose was, you know, clearly had to go through the neck and be very subtle about it. He couldn't take a large army. He couldn't wave his banners. He had to kind of tiptoe around Moat Kalen to get past the Ironborn to get back to the Dreadfort. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing, too, about Moat Kalen is, like, it's a, it's in the neck, and so it's like this this point where you can't really go around it because it's, like, sort of on, like, a straight. And uh, and it's very marsh marshland. Yeah, it's, like, like swampy, and there's mm-hmm. alligators all around it. And it wasn't the wasn't the castle that was there, like, really huge, at one point and it's it's sort of like destroyed and broken into pieces and there's a couple towers that are still intact but it's like it's kind of sunken into the ground a little bit yeah it's pretty creepy some uh interesting stuff happens there in the books for sure like more detail than uh, on the show yeah it's cool i like Um, the neck the only other note that i had about this kind of set of scenes was i liked when bolton or when roos said we needed Theon whole and <laughs> Ramsey's response, which I found was funny because, you know, obviously Roos is talking about him being castrated. He goes, Theon was our enemy, but Reek, Reek will never betray us. Yeah, and I so thought creepy. that was a great line because he does betray the Boltons. He rescues Sansa. They oh, run off right. together. Yeah. Eventually he, uh, eventually he's triggered enough. I was, it's, one of my notes is that during the scene when he's got the knife to Ramsey's neck, Ramsey then at that point informs him that one of his best friends growing up his whole life, basically Rob Stark is dead. So if there was a moment that was going to snap Reek back into Theon Greyjoy and make him take action, that's his moment right there. If he doesn't act with that kind of crazy um, stimulus, learning that fact, 
when he's got the razor in his hand, like he's pretty much safe under. And you can <laughs> under see most him thinking about it too. I mean, he kind of started shaking. Yeah, and- he did a lot of that this episode. Like, oh, like his whole body, like kind of convulsing as he's dealing with processing horrible sights and information. Yes. <laughs> and you know, I I thought it was kind of poetic that the razor is up against Ramsey's neck. And it just kind of reminded me as as he's talking about, like you said, when Rob Stark died, but I it mirrored Catelyn Catelyn's death too. Yeah, her her throat was slit. And I so. believe uh, our listener, Lady Sarah of House Larkham, pointed that out as well in our feedback. Oh, she did. Well. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Good catch, both of you. Yeah, so I thought that was you know kind of poetic and just um, a, a a very a very stark, no pun intended, stark reminder of how Rob Stark and Catelyn Stark died. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that was my number five. Nice. There's a couple other things that, or there's there's one other thing that's worth mentioning too. We we learned this episode that that there's a strong parallel between Jon Snow and Ramsay Bolton as they both have like a bastard complex where their bastardy their bastardhood has sort of like um an, a psychological effect on them that, on them each that gives them a chip on their shoulders which they oh, definitely. You know, express in various different ways ramsey flays people Jon snow sword fights and fucks wildlings or whatever but <laughs> you know it's pretty uh it's just a neat corollary to draw between the two of them and to uh witness the different decisions that they make you know where Ramsey will do anything to get his 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 family name, the Bolton name, whereas John has the opportunity from a king, Stannis, who offers him to his to to be a Stark, and all he has to do is kneel. You know, and he yeah. won't do it. You know, I will not kneel. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's pretty badass. So different same goals different value sets between the two and it's just interesting to see the different choices that they make and the ways that the stories go with similar motivations definitely and i there was actually one more bullet point that i think we should it's worth mentioning is this is when roos finds out that the stark boys are still alive right yeah that's a really important uh, strategic and he's, moment i mean we talk, we briefly you know, that's why, obviously, he sends Locke um, to the wall to, you know, kind of see if they're being housed there. But I believe, other than Ramsey, Roos is the only one in the South that knows that. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think anyone else knows that two male heirs of the Starks are alive other than Sam... And Ramsey. Yep, and uh, he sends a hunting party out at the end of the scene to try to find him. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's kind of the start of that story arc, too, of them capturing Rickon as well. Yep, there's a funny quote by Ramsey that's worth mentioning, too. Uh, Reek comes in, and uh, Roos is like, what did you do to him? And he says, I trained him. He was a slow learner, but he learned. He's like, you flayed him. I peeled a few bits, removed a few others. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awful. Yeah. It's rugged. He's, uh, I mean, yeah, you got to be insane coming from a family with whose who sigil is the flayed man, right? Ugh, 
God. It's awful. Yeah. Can't even imagine. It's like I get a paper cut and I wig out. <laughs> right? Oh, man. So that wraps up your number five? Yes. What's yours? My number five is A Sword Has a Name, which oh. uh, it's when basically with the wedding gift, gifts are being presented to Joff. Okay, that's my number two, and I named that The Brunch Squad. (laughs) (laughs) Killer. So we can collaborate here. Awesome. I don't know. I mean, it's just a a pretty wild scene. Tyrion's all happy about giving him this really rare book, and uh, we we get a... um, I think it's I can't remember the exact details. It's called the The Lives of Four Kings, Grandmaster Kaith's History of the Reigns of Daron the Young Dragon, Baylor the Blessed, Aegon the Unworthy, and Daron the Good. A book every king should read. And he doesn't mention it here specifically, but there's only like two or three copies of this book even in existence that are known. So it's like oh, a really, really okay. rare, like treasured book. And Joffrey has a really measured, classy response, you know. Now that the war is won, we should all find time for wisdom. Thank you, Uncle. And I love that he, like, looks... It's really funny in that kind of quick moment in that scene. Tyrion puts the book down. There's kind of this awkwardness between Joffrey and Tyrion. Tyrion looks at Tywin, and right after it cuts to Joffrey, and Joffrey looks at Tywin, and they're both looking to Tywin to see, like, how do we react to this situation? Do we do good? Do we do good? And Tywin kind of, (laughs) Tywin kind of nods to Joffrey, like, just, you know. Good boy. And that's when he says that, that line, and clearly Joffrey has no time for wisdom because he <laughs> beats the shit out of that book yeah, with, he beats the little. shit out of it oh and my their God. faces they're all like so that makes more sense now i wish they would have said that in in the show that right. there were only like one or two of these tomes in existence because i mean in the scene as a first time viewer maybe someone that's never read the books or done any research on the show like, yeah it's just a book I mean, why is everybody freaking it, out why is everyone like horrified at this i mean yeah. it's joffrey what do you expect he hates Tyrion. of course he's gonna do something stupid yeah like exactly this. Tyrion should have known that that book was not safe <laughs> you know as a gift to joffrey. especially after getting a sword <laughs> of yeah, Valerian's true. Sword. Well, the sword came right after <laughs> yeah so Tyrion didn't, oh, that's didn't true. know yet. That's he gives him the book and then he gets the sword. And, that's uh, right. That's oh my right. God, it's so funny. Um, Tywin tells him, you know, he, the sword is put on the table and he says, one of only two Valyrian steel swords in the capital, your grace, freshly forged in your honor. And Joff's face, as he's being told about this, he looks like a pig in shit. Like, <laughs> it's like the most stoked, like... Like, beady-eyed little bastard grin. It's like a little kid on Christmas morning. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. Um, like, the, something about the way his mouth is poised and it just makes me crack up every time. And then he goes, he, like, hops around the table and, like, grabs it and unsheaths it. It, like, rings. The blade rings out for, an, like, a seemingly unnaturally long period of time. And really cool, the sound effect that they used for that. Definitely. And then I I do like when he referenced, you know, it's every time I use it, it's going to be like cutting Ned Stark's head off all over again. (laughs) I thought, you know, that's such a horrifying thing to say in front of Sansa, but it's 
True, because Illin Payne used ice to cut Ned's oh, head wow, off. Oh, wow. It's so much more true than he even knows. Yeah. yeah that's crazy. And Widow's Whale is made from the rendering of, of ice. Right. So I never I even just, put that together before. That's so funny. Yeah. So I just thought, like, I mean, I'm not sure Joffrey knows that this sword is derived from ice, but I just thought that was a great kind of nod to the fact that that is how Ned died, is that same Valyrian steel did cut Ned's, Ned's yeah, head off. It's crazy. It's almost like the, the reddish tint of the blade is is result of the blood of Ned. Ooh. <laughs> <creepy>. <laughs> um. So, the, so after Joff smashes the shit out of the book, like Gallagher with a watermelon, <laughs> Tyrion's face is just like sorrowful, you know, and Sansa is shocked. And I think this is the moment where she starts to like feel a little bit of sympathy for Tyrion. Yeah. Which only builds throughout this episode until Joffrey kicks the cup and she reaches down to pick it up for Tyrion. It's like a symbolic gesture that like... Kind of, you know, that she's like starting to come around a little bit to him, I think. Yeah, I I actually have that in my notes, too, during the Purple Wedding, that this episode, Sansa, I think stops. I think my exact note is, I'm not going to look through it because it, <laughs> I have so many notes. Uh, but my my exact note on that was, is Sansa stop, stops despising Tyrion this yep. episode and starts seeing him as more of a of a human being and you know the actually kind of the upstanding guy that he he is he's not just a lannister which is i think was in her thought process for a lot of their marriages she's married to this lannister she's married to this imp but she realizes that he's been kind of oppressed his whole life and this young kid is just like completely belittling him and embarrassing him and i think her her heart really goes out to him in this episode for sure yeah it would have been interesting to see how their relationship would have developed if she didn't have to run away this same episode right when she starts to you know feel sympathy for Tyrion. yeah and you know it's it's echoed i believe when she meets Ramsay or actually the scene where she marries Ramsay, she said to him Tyrion was always very kind mm-hmm so that that feeling, even though it was fleeting in this episode versus the other episodes with them, that she has remained fond of him yeah. throughout the years. I hope that we, they get reunited and we get to see you know, them meeting up again. That would be cool. Me too. Be good. Lots of... Good hug. <laughs> a, a, a good hug. <laughs> a nice long embrace. <laughs> So I have a note for this one. This is the first time we see the new actor that plays Tommen. Oh, is it at the wedding or at the uh, at the the gifting? At the gifting ceremony. Nice, interesting. Yeah, true. I noticed this episode the new Tommen, um, and I couldn't remember if he had if he had come in last season or if it was this season. But yeah, I'm almost 100 percent positive that this is the first time I think we you're see right. that actor. I think you're right. Pretty pretty sure. And the uh, and the names that 
he goes through are pretty interesting. It's such a like a, it's such a shame to call to call that sword widow's whale. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, it's such like a beautifully crafted piece, and it deserves some like some some type of powerful, grand, like beautiful name, you know. But then again, it was forged in in heartbreak. Basically, it beheaded Ned. It was stolen from from the Starks and melted down. So it's almost like that sword sword became the bane of Catelyn Stark in a way. And that was like, my note on it. It's named Widow's Whale because it was forged from ice, and it really reflected that scream Catelyn does right before she dies. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a great point too because that was also very recently, just a couple episodes ago. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was the Widow's Whale on this show for sure. For sure. I mean, even though it was a whale for, you know, losing her son, I think it was all of it because she never really, I mean, she broke down when she learned of Ned's death. She walks through all the guys. She gets to the, the, the trees and, you know, kind of falls and starts crying. And then she has to pick herself back up again because Rob's having a meltdown. So right. she needs to be strong for him. So I don't think she ever like let out all got her anguish from out. Ned. Yeah. yeah. She needed to stay strong. And seeing Rob get, you know, stabbed by Roos, I think all of it, the anger, n- never seeing Bran and Rick on again, which she mentioned when she reunited with um, the Blackfish and her brother. Yeah, it all kind of compounded. It just kind of came out. She's never going to see her daughters again. They don't know where Arya is. And Sansa's- she knows she's about to die, too. And she's going to die. So, I mean, talk about a whale. Yeah, and her, her grandson was just killed right in front of her, or granddaughter yeah, as well. Fuck. God <laughs> almighty. Yeah. So, a couple other Kill names. Kill me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A couple other names that were suggested were Stormbringer, which is cool because it kind of harkens back to the um, the legacy of the Baratheons, where their, their castle Storm's End and whatnot. Storm's End, yeah. I think one of our listeners mentions that, too. I hope we see Storm's End in season eight. I really want to see Storm's yeah, End. Yeah, that'd be so eight. cool. It's supposed to be a really cool castle. Big, big, thick walls, like a hundred feet thick. It's like it's impossible to uh, to take that castle, which is why the siege lasted so long. I think we will. I think we will. I hope so. See it. Some major stuff from the book that happens there hasn't really played out on the show though, so there's more reason we to see it in the books as of now. Um. Oh, and then Terminus is another name that somebody suggests. What's up with that? I don't even know what <laughs> that doesn't, is. <laughs> doesn't really fit with the others. Terminus is like the end. Oh, um, oh. Oh, I guess it okay. kind of makes sense then because it kills people. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and then Wolfsbane. That's another good one. Obviously, <laughs> that's been yes. You know, it's made from ice, which was uh the Wolfsbane, Ned's bane, his death, and. uh it's it's sad that such a like a treasured relic of the House Stark ended up being so awful for them. But then again, sure. this the steel may redeem itself still. There's still a chance. So you're telling me there's a chance. Um so I yeah! caught something in this scene that I kind of noticed a theme throughout this episode was Tywin and Shay. So oh. Cersei in this scene 
comments to Tywin, see that whore over there, that's the one, that's Shay. And Tywin says um, he wants Shay brought to him in the tower. Oh, shit. I missed that and, entirely. Yeah, and so... This is obviously I mean, when she's compromised. Yes, so this is kind of a more general note and I'm just skipping through the episode just to show that this comes up like four times that I was able to count. Um, when Olena takes the, the bead off Sansa's necklace, mm -hmm. the, the poison in that bead is called the strangler and it's being carried by Around a necklace. A neck. Yeah, that's cool. And Very, I, uh, apropos. Shay is killed by being strangled by a necklace. Oh, yeah, true. T Tyrion strangles her with a necklace. So I thought that was kind of a hint towards their demise. Nice. And then when Tyrion is sending Shay away, she goes, what's wrong, my lion? And he goes, don't call me that. <laughs> And I, you know, she ends up calling Tywin her lion. Yep. And then when Tywin is talking to Lady Olena at the Purple Wedding, Lady Olena says to him, you ought to try enjoying something before you die. And I felt that that really foreshadows Tywin and Shay getting together because Tywin doesn't oh. really strike me as the whoring type. Yeah, that's And he what dies... Right after he has sex with her, yeah, so. and uh, that's what that's what the thing. Nobody ever thought that Tywin was like a whoremonger, but there are a couple hints that he may have had tunnels created to escape the uh, the Red Keep to go to a whorehouse. Oh, interesting! So it was there. They were made. They were ordered to be made by a previous hand of the king. It's not said who, but people think that it may be Tywin. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I just kind of picked up on that just foreshadowing throughout this episode. I mean, it was very subtle. It was very small moments, but it kind of all came full circle by the end of the episode. There were clearly four mentions that made me think of Tywin's death, Shay's death, and them being together before they both died. Interesting. Yeah, that's really crazy. I didn't pick up on any of that. Good catch. Very good. Yeah. So, what else do you have on this scene? That's pretty much uh, pretty much it for me. How about your number four? My number four, I labeled or I titled the Warg, which is obviously Bran. Nice. Yeah, I have as my number one, I believe. Um, yeah, Bran's vision. So we can collaborate on this. Okay. Cool. Um, so. I really enjoyed this scene. I, I liked that it started out with him being in Summer's body and yeah. hunting and him kind of losing himself in his wolf. And I thought it was very foretelling that Jojen said to him, you know, spending too much time warging is dangerous. Yeah, that's and, creepy, huh? That, like, the more you're in your animal, the more you lose yourself, and you can sort of merge with your beast, basically, and completely forget your humanity. Yeah, and then in that kind of same instance, Mira kind of echoed that by saying, you know, like, if we lose you, we lose everything. 
And I thought, you know, could that possibly be kind of a foreshadow, like, to the end of the story, perhaps? Yeah, Bran could be, like, needing to warg into a dragon or something and stays in the dragon just long enough to complete some goal as the, as the enemy forces are, like, breaking into the barricaded area where his body is or something like that. He could be killed while he's warging. Yeah, so I thought that was a very, you know, foretelling, very quick scene. And, you know, to Jojen's point to be a cripple and being able to warg into a beautiful animal like a wolf and be able to run and eat and smell and use all your senses and be free. It, I can't imagine how tempting that would be to be in Summer's body all the time because his reality is the fact that, I mean, he can't walk. He can't go anywhere. He's completely reliant on other people. Yeah, it's pretty hardcore. Must be amazing. Whereas, yeah, I, I couldn't even imagine that amount of freedom. Plus, wolves are so self-sufficient. You know, they are amazing predators. They can take care of themselves. They're independent. Heightened senses, too. One of the cool things about the books yeah. is that you get to, like, you get more of a feel of what it's like to be in inside the dire wolf's mind. And you can hear things from, from so far away. You can, you know, you can smell things from... Like, you know that there's, like, warm blood around when you're ready to hunt and, you, you know, stuff like that. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I loved, I know that this is your number one, his vision. So, this is a part of, you know, my number four. But I loved that his vision was a compilation of images from the past and the future. And I found it very interesting that Shadow of the dragon flying over King's Landing, it's really hard to place whether that's in the past yeah. or in the future. Yeah, it could have easily been from, like, after the conquest, anywhere up until the Dance of the Dragons or, you know, the uh, the Blackfire Rebellions after the final dragon died, or, like, you know, around that time. Um, or it could be in the future with Danny's dragons. Pretty crazy. Danny's dragons, or maybe um, Viserion, the dead dragon. Oh, uh, what do you think? I think it's from the future because yeah. the Blackfire rebellions and the dragons happened so far in the past. There were no. I watched. I rewatched his vision like five or six times during this rewatch to podcast about it. There was nothing else that far back. The farthest back that it went was the Mad King saying to burn them all. Oh, yeah, in a different vision. Yeah. Oh, that's in a different vision. So th there wasn't anything that far back in this vision. That's true. I think so. It would I be kind think of out of place. It would be very out of place for it to be that far in the past. And it wouldn't be too significant to the story. Everything else is significant to the story. So I bet exactly. you're right. I bet it's Viserion. It's either Viserion. So I rewound it again. Oh, you couldn't see any holes in the shadows for the, where the holes in the wings are, though. No, and also there's no snow on King's Landing. And our last, the last episode of season seven, it starts snowing in King's Landing. Right, that's true. And how about one of the other clips from his vision in this episode? It's the, the throne room covered in some type of white substance. Do you think it's snow or could it be ash? I think it's snow because Danny had this very similar vision 
when she was in the house of the undying. Right, which is interesting. So we're getting like, we know that they're not hallucinations because Danny had the same vision basically as Bran. But I didn't think it was clear whether it was snow or ash in Danny's vision either. Well, I think it was snow because if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, I could be thinking when she walked out of the, the wall, but I think she grabbed her arms as if she were cold. Mm. Good, and good catch, yeah, if that's the case, it could hint be towards snow. I think maybe, or or honestly, it could be a combo of both, because in Danny's vision, the ceiling was burned out. Right. And the if we look if you go back and look at this scene, the lighting could probably give you hints as well if whether the ceiling is still around or not in Brand's vision. I got the feeling that it, the ceiling was busted as well. Yeah, me too. I felt like they were looking at kind of the same, the same vision, but from different perspectives. Like Danny was physically walking through right, first the person, room, and Brand was just getting this glimpse. So my question was. Is Bran seeing this for himself or seeing it as Danny's vision in this vision? Like seeing it through Danny's eyes. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm not sure. It doesn't st- it doesn't seem like any of this stuff is through his own eyes, really, because he sees himself falling out of the tower from behind. He sees a, he has a vision of of Ned in the black cells underneath the uh, the, the red keep when he's being held prisoner before he's executed. They also, and he he sees Ned in the in the Godswood at at um, Winterfell sharpening ice. Yes, cleaning yes. Off so it's ice. all it's all different perspectives. So I'm wondering if it's he's seeing that scene as Danny was seeing it in the House of the Undying. Yeah, maybe. So, but I mean, that's a great catch. I didn't even it didn't even occur to me to be honest that it could be Ash. I I immediately went to snow because of season seven, episode seven. It's snowing in King's Landing, and we know that there's going to be some type of battle there. Plus, we know winter's coming. (laughs) And winter's coming. So I kind of immediately went to snow. It could be kind of a combination, like the dragons come in, they burn the crap out of King's Landing, the ceiling's out, and then it starts to snow. All right, and then Ice Dragon Viserion's breath would cause snow and ash. (laughs) Maybe. Right? (laughs) (laughs) He also um, sees the little girl from the pilot episode, the the zombie girl, the little redhead, facing away from the camera, and she sort of starts to turn towards him and um, sees hundreds of ravens flying, like right before Sam killed the White Walker. He sees the tree where the uh, where the three-eyed raven is he sees the three-eyed raven flying through the crypts of winterfell he sees a zombie horse which looks like the horses you know that the white walkers are riding yes so creepy and seeing himself falling from the from the tower imagine that witnessing your own thing so especially from that angle that yeah. was from summer's angle cuz summer was down below damn good point yeah, so I'm wondering, like, what is he, like, how is he seeing all this stuff? Because apparently when the, the Thread Raven wargs through the trees, he can, like, see through other trees. He can see through all the animals, um, a thousand eyes and one, you know. So he's, he can see, like, through all these things. But how would he be seeing into the Red Keep's black cells? How would he be seeing the shadow from a vantage point over King's Landing? Well, so 
the the visions that he is seeing are like the angle for example when ned is in the dungeons i believe is from varus varus's perspective mm. when ned is cleaning ice in the godswood that was Catelyn's perspective because she walked up to Whoa. that was after he ex- executed the deserter. So um, and then when he falls out the window, that's that's Summer's perspective. So I think because he can warg into humans, I'm wondering if maybe in these visions, he's actually seeing them from other people's perspectives and not his own perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Totally. So then the question is, how did he see the one, the vantage point of the shadow over King's Landing? Maybe he was looking through a raven's eye or like a bird's eye view or something. Yeah. Or, um, I mean, this could be another foreshadow of there's multiple dragons in the air being ridden by multiple people. Mm -hmm. So the, the zombie horse chomping at the bit, is that from Sam's point of view as he's hiding behind the rock and this horse comes walking by? Yes, that's correct. That's cool. Yeah, so I I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of powerful moments in this scene, in this vision, and I think it's there's a lot of foreshadowing and I'll be curious to see how this vision and his other vision when season 8 finally plays out to see why these particular images were chosen mm-hmm. for these visions. Like why was Ned in the dungeon chosen? Is that you know, kind of like a make it like a pivotal moments, I guess would be, these are clearly pivotal moments of the series because they were very particular scenes and, and, you know, flashes. How are these particular flashes of this entire series going to play out in season eight? Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing is that, they're moving along in the forest and Bran sees the weirwood and tells Hodor to take him to the tree. And he just seems like he knows, like he has like a, a feeling that he needs to touch the tree. It's like he knows he's going to have a vision when he touches it. He goes to it and touches it. And it just seems like he was like operating on autopilot suddenly. Like when he saw the tree, he just like knew he had to go to it, <laughs> you know? And then it ends up giving him the vision, leading him to the other tree, the big tree. Yeah, absolutely. And that tree, I mean, it was almost like the sun was kind of shining down on it just in that one spot. Summer walked over to it. Summer is beautiful too, huh? Oh gosh. Yeah. Just what great, what a great dog and CGI that they did to make him look exceptionally large next (laughs) to that tree. Yeah. And, you know, I think, being that Bran can warg into Summer. I mean, obviously Summer sensed something about that tree because he walked up to it and then looked at Bran and then walked away. Like, come over here. Take a look. Yeah. And Bran maybe got that feeling from Summer. Like, Interesting. I want to I touch that tree. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to go over there and Hodor, you know, take me to the tree. <laughs> now he's like, Hodor, it, take me to this other tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we gotta now we gotta walk to this other tree, and oh, by the way, you die at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, Homer. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. Yeah. Anything else you want to add about this scene? No, no, that's 
That was my number four, right? Yeah. So do you have any more notes about this? Uh, nope. That pretty much covers it. Okay. What was your number four? My number four is Stannis's struggle. Okay. And it just, uh, there's awesome. a lot of things in the short time we see Stannis this episode that he's conflict, seems to be sort of conflicted about. Obviously, they're burning people alive <laughs> when we find Again. them. <laughs> on the, yeah, on the shores at Dragonstone, burning heretics, one of which is Axel Florent, who is his wife, Salith's brother. And uh, interestingly, you might remember this, uh, that actor who plays Axel, is he briefly portrayed Michelangelo in The Tudors. Yes, he did. That's very, right. very shortly for like very a shortly. It's walks all wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of creepy. That um, Celise, as her brother's burning alive and screaming, um, she's like excited, and they like go up in a big plume of flame. And Melisandre is smiling and Celise is all like giddy and talking about how their souls are rising, you know, like, Did you do you see, see it? it? Their souls. See it? And, and Stannis is like, like, he seems to be taking kind of no pleasure in this whole thing. He's probably doing it because it seems necessary, according it's to... It's like a means to an end. Right. And he, he's sort of brainwashed by Melisandre. Like, I mean, not, not necessarily brainwashed. He's seen stuff, you know, like he knows that stuff is happening. So he's inclined based on evidence to think that she knows what the hell she's talking about, basically. But at the same time, he's not really digging it, you know, because he seems sort of disgusted by Salise's attitude. And as she, as he walks away, um, Davos comes over and, you know, <laughs> Lord Florent was her brother by law, you know, and he was an infidel. And he's sort of justifying it out loud to Davos. He's he's trying to convince himself as well at the same time exactly. that this is the right thing. Because he, he, he's doing it because of Melisandre and he thinks the red god is real. But you know that he doesn't think it's right. So he's trying to justify it to both of them out loud, which is kind of funny. And uh, Davos is like, he's like, how many ships did he bring to your cause? How are you wasting all more of these resources? You. Yeah, more than you. How many men? <laughs> a good deal more than you. Like, I could easily burn you too, motherfucker. Shut up. <laughs> their be- their relationship, Davos and Stannis, is really funny. How Stannis is always like, trying to wanting to kill Davos, and Davos is always like, getting himself back in talking Stannis' good it. graces. Good graces. <laughs> yeah, talking about it. Yeah. So that's pretty classic. So a note I want to make before we go on, this is actually the first time, like Tommen, this is the first time we see the new actress that plays Solis, because oh. in the very first time we see Solis, it's actually a different actress. I didn't even notice. Good good catch. Yeah, yeah. So two two new replacement characters in this in this episode. Interesting. Yeah, after another replacement actor in the last episode with uh, Dario. Dario, yes, it's, a, it's a me, Dario. Fabio Naharis. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so next they're up in the dining room, wherever they are in, in Dragonstone, and Salise is talking about the siege, which we briefly mentioned before at Storm's End, where Davos showed up and rescued them with onions, and how uh, Stannis hates fish, but they're serving fish because the larder is basically empty at Dragonstone. they got to get the hell out of there anyway at this point so they're just going to go north instead of going back to attack king's landing basically so um Celise ends up talking about shireen and basically talking shit you know like i fear for our 
our daughter's soul. She's a stubborn little beast. And Stannis starts to stick up for her. You know, she's a child. And and uh, she's my daughter. You will not strike her. Because Solis says that she thinks she needs the rod. She's, she's, yeah. she's sullen and stubborn and sinful. Like, god damn. She's Jesus, a little she's girl. She's like you know? 10. <laughs> yeah, and odds are that this is similar to... Um, Similar to the way Stannis is like out loud justifying what they're doing on the beach, I think that she's sort of been convinced due to like their religious beliefs or whatever that the gods have cursed Shireen for some reason, you know, giving her her, f- her facial affliction. So she she's like, it must be because she like picks out the bad qualities to make it make sense because if Shireen was like a little angel like a little good girl why would the the gods do it right so she's got to pick up every pick out every little bad thing about Shireen and use it to justify the gods decisions exactly um, maybe and there there is a there is a um there's a line that Stannis says in this kind of scene he says, I hate a good many things, but I suffer them all the same. Right, right. And yeah. I, I think that's a very strong line. And it's certainly not pointed towards his daughter because he makes it clear that he's sticking up for his daughter. Right. But I think it's a nod to what just occurred on the beach. Totally. And also, I mean, clearly their relationship is extremely <laughs> strained. <laughs> so... Um, I mean, Solis has never been able to have any more children. Stannis has never they, been able to even try with her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think that you could definitely read in between the lines of, of that statement of Stannis. It, w- it was kind of all encompassing of what just occurred and the conversation he's currently having with his wife. Yeah, like, there's a lot of things. I can't stand you. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah. you're such a bitch, you know, and you're crazy. Also, how uh, Robert gave Renly Storm's End. That's like been a sticking point that Stannis has been upset about for a long time after faithfully serving Robert in the army and whatnot. Um, he gives Storm's End to Renly. You know, yeah. that's probably something that he hates that he puts up with. Um, just Renly in general, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Etc. So it's it was a it was a very f- telling line that had a lot more weight than it did when he's you know when as he said it it right. was like it really does you, mean a lot more like yeah it's not just like a throwaway line um, not at all yeah so basically you know he hates things and puts up with them or he has to make tough decisions he he. He's conflicted about the stuff going on in the beach, but he puts up with it. He's conflicted by his own feelings for his daughter versus the way that his wife is talking about his daughter. And um, the fact that he sticks up for in this episode, it makes it even like more brutal and heartbreaking when he actually burns her at the stake and finally like gives in to his wife's bullshit. Basically. I think he was desperate. Like, he, this is, this is the episode that he cashes in all of his cards with the Lord of Light. He's burning humans. He's burning, you know, in-laws. He's, he is putting all of his poker chips on the table. Right. He's all in with the Lord of Light, with Malisandra. And when they get caught in that snowstorm and... His men are dying. He's they're diseased. They're sick. It, he 
he feels as if he doesn't have a choice. Like right. he's seen, he's doing it for the he's good seen of what the King's realm. blood works with just leeches. Like he surrenders. And I mean, he's not a terribly affectionate person and it's like, again, a means to an end. And I, we know that he loves his daughter, but he truly feels that he has this duty kind of duty and divine path to follow at right. this point. Because he, like you said, is brainwashed. A great gift requires a great sacrifice. Only life or death can pay for life. And right. at this point, it's like they're either all going to die. Again, it's it's the same sentiment he has about killing... The people on the beach. Gendry. Well, oh, even Gendry, Gendry yeah, well. to save <laughs> thousands. He's going to kill his daughter to save his army mm-hmm. and what's one grayscale daughter compared to a kingdom i know it's it's horrible but it's it is the man that stannis is he is not an affectionate person mm-hmm. so while he loves his daughter he loves duty more yep yeah it's pretty brutal i think that pretty much wraps up everything i wanted to say about um the scene anything else you want to add um, I found a a, a a line that Malisandra says when Selyse asks her or says like, oh, and that's when he, f- when the Lord of Light found you and she goes, oh, until yeah, yeah, he yeah. found me. And I was wondering, I, I, it just struck with me, like, I wonder truly how Malisandra did become this red priestess right and we know that probably two three hundred years ago yeah yeah. and we uh we know that she experienced true hunger when she was a child it's all she knew she also and we know that she's a slave that she was a slave yeah i think we find that out later um but she also we find we find that that out out when yeah we find that out in her conversation with gendry on the boat while they're on the black water looking up at the King's Landing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And then um, she also tells Shireen in this episode that she, you know, dealt with horrible things when she was a child as well. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I love that little scene between the two of them. Like, you have so many questions, don't you? And she goes, well, it, their little banter back and forth was very... Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if 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 you guys are curious about Melisandre's past, she is a point of view character in the books. So there are chapters written from Melisandre's point of view, which is interesting. You get more of an insight into the way what makes her tick. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty. I don't cool. think I've gotten to that part of the books yet where she's had a point of view. I think it's in the later books for sure um all right so what's your uh number three my number three numero tres is the three musketeers which nice. is Tyrion, jamie and Bronn. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so this kind of section of the episode starts with Tyrion and jamie's little conversation which was entertaining and your hand it's nicer than the old one <laughs> it's true which i thought was kind of a funny line yeah, and, yeah really funny you know Braun or no podrick podrick asks is that gold you know and he goes it's gilded steel so we find that 
in this episode that it's not a golden hand. It's yep. actually steel. And Jamie is like not amused by this whole conversation. <laughs> no, not at all. And he's sitting there like Tyrion's chowing down and Tyrion, you know, was like, why is no one eating? Yeah, my <laughs> wife is starving herself. You're not eating. You lost the hand, not your stomach. You know? Yeah. So I've, I, I've, I just kind of loved that kind of brotherly banter back and forth. This is definitely, um, obviously, you know, anytime Braun and Tyrion are in a scene, there's, there is a sense of lightness. I, I mean, I know that there are kind of occasionally parts of stressful and dark, dark scenes, but most of the time, if you see Braun or Tyrion in a scene, there's going to be some type of lightheartedness mm-hmm. that's around, even if it's in a dark, a dark situation. Definitely. <laughs> You know, and um, he's, he's you know, talking like, why is no one eating? He goes, try the boar. Cersei can't get enough of it ever since one got Robert. Yeah, <laughs> and- yeah. It's so funny that she, like, loves eating boar now. And those boar <laughs> sausages look good, man. And the funny thing, too, is that, I don't know if you caught this, the first shot of this scene is a sausage being served. And it's right after we get to see Ramsay's hor- horrifying hunting experience. And oh yeah. So it like cuts from Theon like <laughs> to like a sausage just like the one that oh Ramsay was tormenting I, with. I with didn't even pick up on that. <laughs> yeah, it's so like they awful. they like they get they like slash our souls by showing us this brutal dog attack and then they rub salt in the wound by tor- by tormenting us with a sausage again immediately. <laughs> yeah. That first scene. We basically just learn that Miranda is perfect for Ramsay in the same way that Alaria is perfect for Oberyn and uh, Grit is perfect for John. We get to hear the name Tansy being called out, which is interesting. It has significance to um, Hoster Tully. It's some of his last words before he dies were Tansy. He's calling out to Tansy and oh, um, in the books at least. And Catelyn's like, "It's me, Cat," and he keeps saying Tansy, Tansy. So I wonder what the relation is there. I think it's another type of flower. So like oh. like Gilly's named after a flower. Tansy may also be named after a flower. And Tansy, the girl who gets attacked by the dogs, is the other girl who's responsible, who was tasked with seducing Theon. Um, b- oh, before, is uh, that who that was? Yeah, so that makes it even more creepy that Ramsay is like killing one of the two girls that was like helping him out, basically. She should have been in his good graces, but oh, she made Miranda jealous, you know? <laughs> so oh let's uh, torture her brutally. There's a line where uh, where um, Ramsay's like, if you make it out of the woods, you win, you know? And it oh, made me God. think of... <laughs> Yeah, made me think of some like twisted game show or like saw or something like that. He likes doing that because he's he says at one point with uh Theon, like if you guess where you are You can go. Yeah. You can go. Yeah. Same with so uh, likes... with with um fucking what's Bran's little brother's name? Rickon? Yeah, with Rickon, he's like, if you make it across the field, you're free. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. He's so twisted. Zigzag, zigzag. Yeah, zigzag, <laughs> please. Um, so there's a moment where Miranda shoots an arrow through Tansy's leg, and he's like, fine shot. Wasn't it Reek? And this is when Reek, like, it's our first time where Reek is out in the open as Reek, you know. And he he's like, Theon is 
barely in there at all at this point. Reek is basically unquestioning. He like twitches like <laughs> and <laughs> a fine shot, master, you know, but he's as he's witnessing the attack, he's like He's tweaking, you know, Reek is tweaking, and he's, uh, <laughs> Reek is unquestioning, obedient, Reek is weak, he's meek, he's a freak, he tweaks, is, uh, there's a little rhyme from, from Ramsey's brainwashing of Reek in the books, where he's, he keeps saying to himself, Reek, Reek, it rhymes with meek, Reek, Reek, it rhymes with weak, Reek, Reek, it rhymes with freak, you know, and he, like, does this over and over, and, oh my god, at the scene where he, on the show, is, conquering Moat Kalen, like convincing the guys at Moat Kalen to, uh, or trying to convince them to, to pack up basically so that the Boltons can take Moat Kalen. The first guy that shows up is like not taking any of Theon's bullshit basically. He's like, yeah, not a real iron bar and blah, blah, blah. And he's kind of like starts freaking out and you can see him mumbling. And if you look closely, he's saying, Reek, Reek, rhymes with me. Oh, you really? Know? Yeah. So it's like a little slight book hint that if you're really paying attention, you can pick up on. Um, which is a really cool addition for the book. Because so, you get, like, in the book, the first time you encounter Reek, it's a chapter from the point of view of someone called Reek, you know? And it's oh, not until, okay. like, later on in the chapter you realize, oh, my God, it's Theon, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> which is really crazy. Um. So... So, I have a question. Is Tansy, now that I know her name, that's ringing a bell when... Miranda is washing Sansa's hair before her wedding. Does she mention Tansy in that scene? Oh, man, I don't know. Actually, it's not ringing a bell. It's possible. Because she was, like, not so pretty now, and I'm wondering if that's because she was mauled by dogs. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I can't remember. Okay, well, when we we get to that episode, we'll have to to tune in to see. Yeah, definitely. Because she's, she's naming all the women that Ramsey has been with. Oh. Yeah, and I she think Tansy is one of them. Yeah. yeah and I was be. like, who's Tansy? <laughs> but that's why. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, that was like sort of a tangent cutting off your uh, your number three. You want to jump back into that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we were, we were talking about sausages. <laughs> all right, right, right. Okay. Um, another one. I just, I, Tyrion has some of the best quotes in this show, hands down. Um, he's talking about his siblings and he goes, the dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. Right. That was a great quote. Yeah. I like that one too. And he kind of like laughs at the end. And I just thought that was such a perfect. <laughs> to the proud Lannister children. The dwarf, the yes. cripple, and the mother of madness. <laughs> <laughs> and what's kind of interesting is later on in the series, there are some parallels made with Cersei being a lot like the Mad King. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tyrion is talking about... The Mad Mother. The Mother of Madness being that she's the mother of Joffrey, who's clearly mad. But... Cersei also kind of becomes the quintessential kind of mother of madness and the fact that she ends up being queen and is losing her losing Yeah, her that's mind. a great point, too. I didn't even think about it that way. It's really cool. In this same scene, also, we get Jamie confessing his biggest secret, is you know, one of his biggest secrets to Tyrion, which is that he can't fight with his left hand. 
Yeah, I have that in my notes too. I see we finally see Jamie's dismay when he shows his or when he tells his brother he can he can't fight anymore. Yeah, how can I protect the king when I can hardly wipe my own ass? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Poor guy. Yeah, he can hold a sword, but all of his instincts are wrong. Well, can you imagine? I mean, so personally, it's kind of interesting because I'm actually left-handed. Me too. Are you serious? Yeah, That's so I, awesome. I write with my left hand, but I do a lot you of do. other stuff righty. Okay, I'm 100% left-handed. I do everything. Like when I was a little kid and my parents put me in softball, mm. I would catch the ball with my left hand, take my glove off, and throw it with my <laughs> left hand. Classic. <laughs> so um, I just can't imagine. I mean, if you're that good at something with, I'll you know switch up and say that good at something with your right hand and then... All of a sudden, you can't. It's like try to write your name. With yeah, your I was just gonna say non-hand. That. Like just writing your name is difficult. It's brutal. Let alone defending yourself. Yeah. So I mean that that's your why stance I use the word is backwards. Like, Everything would oh, be yeah. like. Uh, yeah. I can't even imagine. It's like everything's in reverse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like mirrored with each other and you know at at this point Tyrion brings up you know I have just I have just the guy and then we add you know the third musketeer to the scene which is Bronn yeah and I love his line well you shit gold just like your father (laughs) that's why I'm gonna keep my mouth shut basically that was great too and I like when they're down that that little area down there with like right by the ocean is pretty cool yeah, really cool. It looks super dangerous, too, to be sword fighting. Like, if Bronn pushed Jamie just a little bit harder, he could have easily fallen off of the edge into the water. For sure, for sure. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, and the, his his gauge to know how safe it is, you know, is like, well, I fuck this guy's wife down here, and she's a screamer. <laughs> so if they can't hear her, they can't hear you. <laughs> I know. It's like, again, with the, the lightheartedness of kind of a sad, serious situation. I mean, like... Jamie's literally taking a hundred steps back with his training. Like, like he even mentions, he goes, I haven't had to, you know, fight with a sparring sword since I was a child. Yeah. Since I was nine. I mean, that's a, that's like a hard pill to swallow for anybody like to be really good at something and then have to take a hundred steps back to like start from scratch. Essentially. Like, I, c- I can't even imagine, you know, being like the best at something and then having <laughs> something happen to you that you literally have to go back to like when you were first learning how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally fucked up. <laughs> and honestly, it shows his fortitude because a lot of people would probably not even try. Yeah, he he, he does. He he continues to also. Yeah, absolutely. So and good for him. It's I mean, it, that's just a huge coup to his personality of how determined he is to stay relevant i guess for his what he's known for yeah to to live up to his reputation or like his at least sword fighting reputation as much as possible for sure yeah to fill to fill those pages that and, uh, were referenced the episode before yeah yeah and uh, he mentioned too about how like this is a dangerous truth you know that if if uh, he needs a, what is it? Tyrion tells him that he needs a proper, discreet swordsman because Jamie says that if people, 
you know, learn what's going on, that he could be in danger. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, like as soon as someone discovers I can't fight, he'll tell everyone. And so it shows you how much he trusts Tyrion that he's disclosing this extremely valuable information to him. Like Cersei wouldn't tell Tyrion her biggest weakness. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. So no. it, it kind of goes to show you that Jamie and Tyrion at least have like a decent relationship. And um, there's definitely a bond, a, 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 a very strong bond there, which I find almost ironic because, well, Jamie clearly has a strong bond with Cersei. They also have a little bit of dissonance with yeah, bigger each divide other. Mm-hmm. And it's ironic because they're twins. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad is actually an identical twin. Wow. And I will tell you, twins have, they're telepathic. I think <laughs> the largest gonna... concentration of twins any place in the world is in Benin, Africa. Oh, really? As far as identical or fraternal? Um, both, I think. Like, I mean, just twins in general, overall. Yeah, because so fraternal twins are genetic, and identical twins are freaks of nature. <laughs> um, they literally, it's just an egg splitting. It's just the odds of that happening are... Right, yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. A, a fertilized egg splitting are, versus fraternal twins are two eggs mm-hmm. that are fertilized at the same time. Um My dad never calls in sick for work ever whatsoever. And like 15 years ago, he came home from work one day and I was like a junior. No, I was younger than that. I was like sometime in like in middle school. So it was longer than that. Um, He came home and he's like, I don't feel well. I think I need to go to the emergency room. I feel like my side is just I'm in so much pain. So my my mom took him to the emergency room. They checked them all out. There was nothing wrong. And when he got home from the emergency room, he was in so much pain. He didn't know what was going on. He's like, I can't believe like they didn't find anything. What's happening? His mom, my grandma called him a few hours later and was like, hi, honey. I just wanted to let you know your brother just got out of surgery. His appendix burst. No way. And he's recovering, but I just, you know, wanted to let you know what was going on. My dad's like, no way. Like That's fucking crazy. Are you kidding me? I have and, to include this in the podcast. You okay, that's, that's totally fine. <laughs> and he was like, my side's been hurting all day, like to the point where I like went to the doctor and got it checked out. Damn. And they, over the past years, they've owned multiple vehicles They've purchased these vehicles. So my my uncle lives in Southern California and we live in Northern California. They've purchased these vehicles like within days or weeks of each other. They are the same vehicle, like the same make, the same model, <laughs> maybe a different color, but they're Hilarious. the same. It's so every weird. <laughs> every time, not every time, but like a lot of the time there was at least if I'm not mistaken, two times that this has happened. It's so funny. So it's it's crazy. It's weird. <laughs> Twilight Zone shit. So, anyways, back to Game of <laughs> Game of Thrones. Oh yeah. So um, we so we know that Jamie trusts Tyrion, and then we know that Tyrion must care a lot about Jamie too because he gives him Braun. And if you're gonna give Jamie Braun even part time, 
you know, you got to like Jamie to some extent. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not yeah. giving him Ron, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, there's clearly, I mean, to the fact, uh, you know, Jamie and Cersei, they're twins. They certainly have a bond. They certainly have a connection. But Jamie has, I would, I would argue to say just as strong of a bond with Tyrion. Maybe, maybe it's more trust more trust with Tyrion. I don't think even though Jamie loves his sister in even an incestuous way, I don't think he trusts Cersei. Yeah, I don't <laughs> you'd have to be pretty stupid to trust Cersei. Right. <laughs> but he Yeah, and Jamie's not with known her, as so. being the smartest guy, but he's not that dumb, you know. No, no. And he he knows that his his brother won't tell a soul first yeah. and foremost what he's talking about. And honestly, he tells Tyrion this without knowing that Tyrion has a possible solution for it. Right. True. Yeah, that's that's cool, too. Um, and the solution may actually work out kind of well, because remember how we were talking about how Jon Snow is a, a great fighter because of the multiple in- influences like he had the master at arms. But then he also got like like um, his style was influenced by the way that wildlings fight. Yes, yes. The same kind of thing is happening here where Jamie's like, a, he was a master at like that master at arms type knight style of fighting. But now, you know, he'll never be that good again with his left hand. But now with his left hand, he's going to have a different style because he's he'll have that master at arms training, but he'll also have the influence of like street fighting from Braun. Which, yes. uh, you know, like he's picking up the blade and Braun knocks it out of his hand and he's like, ah! bold warrior you are attacking a man when his guard is down you know and Bron's like hey best time to attack you know so it's, it's a good yeah, lesson to, for jamie to learn for sure and i kind of was thinking back okay like because i i liked that that um sentence of the best time to attack a man is when his guard is down mm-hmm. so rob captured jamie because jamie's guard was down um, oh, true. Rob was killed at the Red Wedding his while guard his was guard down. was down. And also, it kind of... I, I There's probably other examples that I am just not thinking of right now, but it reminded me of also the raid when after... Well, I guess in two situations with Craster. Craster gets murdered kind of while his guard is down because he's let all of these night's watchmen into his camp same with and then yes absolutely okay so Gior is another one and then also when the night's watch has taken over craster's keep their guard is down when john and the raid go and take it back and i'm sure there's probably other i mean you could maybe even include ned's death in this because Ned was pretty convinced if he were to confess his treason huh, that he true. was going to go to the wall. <laughs> yeah. And instead his head got chopped off. So I'm sure there's other while your guard is down situations that I'm just not thinking of at the top of my head. But for sure, I've, I thought that was very telling to kind of the overall way a lot of characters kind of die in yeah this. i mean just never keeping your guard down oh could, marcella's uh, could... another one. Oh yeah she kisses um what's her face alaria alaria um there's 
I mean, Joffrey in this episode, his guard is down. He's at his wedding. He's not using a tester, a food tester. No, he's not using a tester. So there's, there's a lot of that. So that's, you know, another kind of good line in the show that has a pretty heavy meaning. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Great. Good call. And if you can just conquer that one problem, never let your guard down, you know, that could last, that could make you last a long time. (laughs) Especially in in this world. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Anything else you want to mention about that whole thing? The three musketeers? No, no, I think that was it. So, um, what's your number three? My number three is wisdom from the mouths of babes which is basically just Shireen in this instance. Mel goes to speak with her, Melisandre. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Melly, Melly goes to talk. And uh, basically Shireen isn't buying any of her bullshit, (laughs) which is great. You know, know. (laughs) did you watch the ceremony on the beach? I heard it. And it frightened you? Sir Axel was my uncle. He was always kind to me. You know, and she's like... She knows that they're claiming that this whole action is justified, but she's like, this is bullshit. Like, he was a good guy, you know? And then, um, you know, Melisandre tells her, tries to convince her, like, well, they're in a better place now, princess. The fire cleansed them of the sins of the world. And she points out, but they screamed, you know? And And women (laughs) give birth when they (laughs) they scream, when they give birth. It's like, that's such a random... with joy. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and... Shireen again calls bullshit. She's like, um, afterwards, they're not ash and bones. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Sh- Shireen is just like wise naturally. And uh, she's super smart. You can just tell she's very sm- intelligent little girl. Yeah. She reads a lot and she knows stuff. And uh, like Tyrion drinks and know things. Shireen reads and knows things. <laughs> You know? And so it was just, just kind of cool hearing her call bullshit on all of these things that Melisandre is saying and poking holes in all of her points and arguments and everything. And and uh, it's just great. Like this 200, 300, who, who knows how old human being outwitted by a, like a seven-year-old or eight-year-old, <laughs> however old she is. Maybe she's like 10 or 11. She's like, you have so many questions, don't you? Yeah. yeah. She's like irritated at her. She's, she's like, like, actually, I just have one. Why are you such an idiot? <laughs> you know so yeah this is when um you know she she points out well you didn't have this and she points to the gray skull on her face and melisandre mentions i suffered in other ways sweet girl believe me and so you know we know she was hungry she was a slave like who knows to what extent the torment uh, was for melisandre um so she goes on to ask uh, shireen what do you know of the gods and it turns out that Shireen has read the seven-pointed star. And Melisandre, from her perspective, you know, seeing that the Lord of Light fable. has... Yeah, there's evidence for the Lord of Light's activity and existence. So she's like, lies and fables. And uh, they talk about how Septons speak of the seven gods, Shireen says. And um, Melisandre says, no, there, there are but two gods, a, Lord of, a god of light and love and joy and a god of darkness, evil and fear, eternally at war. And so obviously it's referring to the red god and the great other. But it's interesting how Melisandre is casting aside the notion of like uh, the seven gods of the the polytheistic religion of the, of the seven. And while the two gods would technically also be polytheistic, it's sort mm-hmm. of, it's more like the... Um, 
it's more like the like the Christian mythos of like there's God and there's the devil, you know, and the yes. devil isn't considered a god, but they sort of represent you know the similar type of um, aspects of existence in in this case with the god of light and the god of darkness, you know, the great other and maybe also the god of death. Um, or no, the god of death would be the red god, right? The same. God. She, you know, what's interesting is he's kind of. So Malisandra doesn't ever reference the red god as the god of death. She references him as the the lord of light. Right, but it's um what's his face? Mr. Changey Face Man. Jack um, Jack, uh, Jack and Jack Hagar, and Hagar. Who calls the god of death the red god, right? Yes. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting parallel because Jack and Hagar also I mean, I would say the god of darkness is the god of death. Right. So that's what I'm but confused. Is it? It might be the same god. It might truly be a monotheistic instance. Two aspects of the same thing. Just a different interpretation. Because there was that scene a couple episodes where we were talking about how Thoros and Arya are facing off. And Thoros is talking about the, the, the Lord of Light. And Arya is talking about the god of death. How she worships the god of death. There's only one god. She says, you know, the god of death i think something like that but uh does does thoros ever refer to the red god or to the lord of light as the red god are we right about this is is it people that refer to the lord of light as the red god yeah because she's the red woman yeah i mean i think we might be assuming because i'm not sure and i would have to like watch very intently over the next couple of seasons with when thoros Mm -hmm. is around i don't think he ever mentions he calls him the Lord of Light multiple times. I know right. that for sure. I don't think he ever references him as the Red God. But so Mel does. I think Melisandre does, right? I honestly can't remember. I why don't. It, why do they call, they call her the Red Woman? Because she's you know she's got red hair. She's dressed in, dressed red, in red. She worships the Red God. Yeah, I. That's a, honestly a really good question, Duncan. I'm wondering if it's assumed because she's calling him the lord of light thoros also wears red Mm -hmm. he wears a red cloak so we kind of assume that this is the red god but only i believe and listeners out there if you guys know the answer i just googled it okay awesome i googled asoiaf a song of ice and fire red god and the first thing that shows up is relore and is he considered the Lord of Light? Yeah, Relor is the Lord of Light, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, then there you go. Interesting. Cause I, I was going along the lines of maybe we're as we're assuming. Yeah, and in and Jack and Hagar keeps referring to the red god. Yes. As well. So like they're talking about the same god. The same god. But we thought yeah. that it was like Arya and Beric facing off as with different gods, but they're actually talking about the same god, apparently. They're just interpreting it differently. Malisandra and Thoros talk about him as the Lord of Light and the the Bravosi essentially, like Jock and Hagar and the faceless men and Arya view him as the god of death. So very, very in, interesting. In this scene, she goes, there's two gods, the the god of light and the god of darkness. And while that's 
kind of like you were saying, a polytheistic reference, if they are truly the same gods, it's technically monotheistic. Yeah. Unless unless the great other is like the god of ice. Like uh, the one or the that, old gods, like I don't think the old gods would be related, but there's uh, Melisandre refers to the god of darkness as the as the the great other, and that's who like powers the White Walkers and potentially Bran as well. Oh, okay, okay, interesting, very interesting. Yeah, it's like fire magic versus ice magic, basically. The, yeah, you know, the red god and the uh, the great other. <laughs> <laughs> pretty crazy but also yeah. uh they refer to the red god jockin they'd call him the many-faced god you know so i guess maybe relor is one face and maybe he is, is all face. seven gods <laughs> he's, he's all the gods he's all the gods and people have just over time s- separated them out it's yeah, kind of almost, like, in a way, the reverse from, like, the Greek gods down to, like, Christianity. They right. went from many gods down to one god. This is, like, one god to many gods. Yeah, monotheism to polytheism, and then back to monotheism, kind of, with, yeah. uh, the you know, the many-faced god. How Arya and Jochen recognize it as a single god. It's interesting, yeah, so people could be worshipping different aspects of the same god as yeah. multiple gods. yeah. Kind of, kind of interesting um, theory there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting like interpretation of the religions that Melisandre has. She seems to prefer like the duotheism instead of the polytheism of the seven. But it, while it's technically polytheistic, it kind of mirrors the god and the devil, which I thought was sort of interesting. Um, yeah. What's your number two? My number two was the brunch squad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cool, cool. So then okay. my number two is Thug Life Olena. Tell Sassy. I wanted to know it was me. <laughs> Tell Cersei it was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's basically, there's... She has like the most gangster moment of the entire series in this episode where she walks up to Sansa. You look exquisite, child. Oh, the, the wind has been at you, though. And she reaches to, she plays with her necklace a little bit, then reaches to fix her hair, and then reaches back up and grabs the necklace, the little bead off the necklace, right as she's still talking to Sansa and distracting her, saying, I haven't had the opportunity to tell you how sorry I was to hear about your brother. And that's right as she plucks the thing off. And you can see it clear as day that she like pulls that thing right off the necklace if you're looking for it, which is pretty awesome. And yeah, uh, you know, I didn't catch it the first time I watched this series. Oh, I was I. totally oblivious to it. But you know what totally. I I loved about this is she goes, The wind has been at you as she's talking about her sympathies of her brother's death. But like Grey Wind. Grey Wind, so I thought that was kind of a nod to Grey Wind and how sorry she was about her family. So Yeah, for that, sure. That was just kind of interesting because the wind has been at you. Yeah, like the is, death of Grey Wind has been bothering you. <laughs> yeah, or just and like the death of Grey your Wind brother. representing Rob. Yeah, the death of your brother and mm-hmm. your mother have been at, you know, at you. And so I thought that was kind of a great poetic line. 
Nice. The other thing that's interesting too is that she takes the poison from the necklace and it I'm thinking to myself like wow this is really cool with like the whole like theatrics of it and everything that she's like there's all these players involved and the the, the poison has been smuggled in and then she's grabbing it but it seems kind of unnecessary unnecessary to gone through all of this trouble and involved Sansa and Dantos and all this because if she was meeting with Peter Baelish to arrange this she could have just gotten the poison and I don't think anybody's searching the bride's grandmother as she's entering the wedding she could have just had it in her pocket the whole time you know i know i know i was kind of thinking that too like also the strangler we come to find out was stolen from picel picel's apothecary Mm. so who stole it yeah was it one of like the little birds or i mean maybe so again yeah, Baelish's birds or Baelish himself, which I highly doubt because he tries to stay out of it all together. Mm-hmm. But to your point, it's like if it's already stolen and it's in the bead of a necklace, why didn't Elena just wear the necklace? <laughs> right. Herself. Yeah. Good question. It's, I think it's it's kind more of interesting to, the way it happened. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was going to say, and also it's kind of, you know, confusing the audience of did Sansa really have a role was she playing a role in this is Tyrion really playing a role in this because I always try to watch the rewatch as like the perspective of a first person viewer or a first time viewer and it's like when you first watch it it's like maybe Sansa knew because she let her take the beat off I mean it's pretty blatant that she takes the beat off but she was so distracted. She like Sansa was so distracted thinking about her family though, because that's you know that's what Lady Olena was talking about. So it's 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 likely that she like totally missed that she twisted that little thing off because she was so distracted. Yeah, but I mean, you do bring up a really good point. Like, why? Maybe just why was all that needed? Yeah, to maybe confuse? just in case something horrible happened and Olena was found out. Like they had to a couple of people in place to be patsies. You know. Mm-hmm, just in case mm-hmm. something went awry i don't know yeah like scapegoats almost yeah, like to yeah. point the finger the other direction yeah so i mean that that could be but i definitely loved that moment where she just kind of like boop, there it goes pops it <laughs> off yeah and then she's like war is war but killing a man at a wedding horrid what sort of monster would do such a thing what sort of monster would do such a thing as she's doing it? And then like, I know. Ooh, the thug like thug life glasses descend do, 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 boom, <laughs> onto her face and boom, a blunt pops in from the side. Dr. Dre starts playing. Yeah. Thug life. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Um, as if men need more reasons to fear marriage. She says, <laughs> she says, just a funny line in itself, but she's totally. so fucking badass. And then she's, She's like joking around with with uh, Sansa and Tyrion. She says, "Perhaps if your popper husband were to sell his mule and his last pair of shoes, he might be able to afford to bring you to Highgarden for a visit." As if Ty- <laughs> as if Tyrion is broke, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Just pretty funny. And then it would uh, be, I liked when she said, "It would be nice to for you to see some of the world." Now it was something like that, like yeah, now that peace has come and all is right now with that the peace world, has come. it would yeah. do you good to see some of it. You must excuse me. It's time that I ate some of this food I paid for. I like how she says ate. She goes et. Oh, yeah, et. Yeah, et. et. My grandmother used to say that. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. funny. Sometimes. 
Um, so yeah, it's, and then she just like exits, like it's just swift as she entered, <laughs> and it's just like super pro. She's like, got Alana. the poison. Super pro. That was I'm out. <laughs> her th- her first thug life moment, or you know, one of her first thug life moments. Pretty pretty classic. I mean, yeah, it's just a simple little thing, but I just love that that moment. How totally gangster she was about the whole thing. Well, in the whole, I mean, okay, so. My number one is the whole purple wedding. So I have like literally, I have literally two pages of notes for my number one. So let's dissect this a little bit and just keep on the path of Olena now that she has the poison because everything kind of has to play out perfectly in order to execute this plan. (laughs) Yeah, it's way needlessly complicated. You have to think about it this way. Okay, so... Tyrion, Tyrion's getting like toe to toe with Joffrey. Joffrey is screaming. I said, Neil, there's like having an old West stare down with each other. Tyrion is not backing down. Silence in the, in the, I mean, it's super tense and Marjorie places. Yeah. But she places the cup that Joffrey has been drinking out of the goblet Mm -hmm. in front of Elena. Yeah. Like she didn't place it at Joffrey's seat. She didn't place it like somewhere random on the table. She placed it in front of Elena. If that didn't happen, how is Elena going to like poison this guy? Maybe like if the reception goes on for a few hours and after like the main, the scheduled festivities take place and people are kind of mingling, maybe she could have like slipped it in there somehow, but I don't know. That's true. That's true. I mean, like you have to think of the logistics. She's, she's fairly far down from where Joffrey and Marjorie are sitting. I mean, she's like two or three seats down. Sansa's on the other side of the table as she is. So she's gotten the poison at this point. She's sitting back in her seat. And, you know, again, to your point, maybe she just seizes this opportunity because the goblet's right in front of her. Now, I read online that you can see Lady Elena putting something in the goblet. I rewound the yeah, scene. Yeah, I didn't see that. I could not. I, I even looked like when... It was panned on other people. I was watching Elena the whole time. I yeah, was watching to see if I could see a hand. You can't see it. You can't. You see can't it. see it at all. So I don't know. But you just get a couple shots of her like looking at it. Yeah, I mean the camera is definitely playing kind of tricks. Like it, it was panning over to her a lot. Yeah, and when Tyrion picks up the goblet after it's been poisoned and hands him the uh, the drink again. Right as he's picking up it up, Lady Olena is looking at Tyrion in the goblet and has like a worried look on her face. Like she knows what's about to happen, obviously, because she just put the poison in there. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, I mean, she's definitely a badass for sure. Super badass. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because exactly like I have it in my notes. So when Tyrion picks up the goblet to give to Joffrey, the camera pans to Elena, like, mm-hmm. and we just get a a, sing, a singular shot of her. Um, so the camera angles actually even at the very beginning of the purple wedding. I'm just gonna jump around. So I, I dubbed it the royal marriage of this series. Nice. Um, there are certain 
camera angles, like when they're getting married, Marjorie like looks over to Joffrey and gives him kind of this evil stare. And as she's kind of giving him this evil stare or, you know, what you could portray at the ceremony itself, like at the ceremony, she like glances at oh, him, she gives like, him like through a the corner of her look. eye. Yeah. And I mean, it, it could be taken as seductive at this point. That's the point. way I looked at it. <laughs> I kind of looked at it from a different perspective because as she's giving him that quote unquote seductive look, she kind of blurs out and the camera focuses on Olena. Mm, and I loved that kind of camera play of the look that Marjorie's giving him is kind of what Marjorie or what Elena is feeling towards him. It's more of like a look of you're dead, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're dead kid. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty, um, pretty telling. And again, from a first time viewer, it just looks like, Marjorie is giving her new husband kind of a seductive look. But as she's doing that, she's the camera angle is actually focused on Elena, although Marjorie's still in the shot. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah. I love like good camera work like that. I know, I know. Really good. It's interesting too, because not only do they in that the royal marriage scene, they pan over to Elena a lot. Elena, I guess, is the way you pronounce it. Um, but they're also panning over to Tywin a lot. True. I, I had wondered for a long time if Tywin was involved with the assassination. Yeah, and, and maybe it's just to throw off the viewer a little bit. Yeah, to, give, to create like multiple suspects in the minds of the viewers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, now we know like who it actually was, but... Yeah. I even thought Cersei may have been involved at one point after like the last time when she was talking with Tyrion about how like, you know, Joffrey was so cute when he was a baby. And like, basically she admits she knows he's an evil bastard at this point. You oh, know? interesting. I never even thought about that because that, that actually makes a really good point, Duncan, because Cersei's right next to Tywin. So the, the, the camera angles like panning over to Tywin, it's a lot of it was Cersei and Tywin next to each other. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Good catch. Yeah, there's so many suspects <laughs> before we knew. Before we knew, you know. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> Pretty funny. Interestingly, I noticed as well, um, this time, which wedding was before? Maybe Tyrion and Sansa in the Sept of Baelor. They kind of walked, because it's a seven-pointed star, they walked like at an angled pathway and took a left mm-hmm. turn kind of to get to the altar area. This time, it's set up with a straight path somehow and uh, the crowd is arranged in such a way where the the gaps between the people form a big cross and uh Joff and or um Marjorie and Mace Tyrell kind of walk through and then he hands her off to Joffrey so it's just a different formation for the wedding this time than the wedding that just occurred a few episodes ago so I thought that was kind of interesting they're mixing it up yeah that is interesting i was trying to see between okay so they're they're clearly there's the statues of the gods around the sept and they're between two of them and i was trying to see which two they were between and you can't tell oh interesting yeah maybe uh, maybe different couples will choose different statues based on their like preferences like some people will worship the smith some will 
worship the father, you know, like they have a go-to God or something like that. Yeah, it looks like Sansa and Tyrion and Joffrey and Marjorie, they were married under the actual like image of the seven-pointed star, which... Right, that big window. I, that big window. So I'm, I'm paying attention throughout this rewatch to see if we ever get a shot of that window and which gods are on either side of that window. Because I'd just be curious if it's like the father and the mother or if it's the Smith and the stranger, like who, (laughs) who are they getting married between? Because we've had two weddings in the sept at this point and they've both been in the same spot. And then we'll have, so we'll have another one in the sept which is Tommen and Marjorie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll maybe they'll show it then. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Oh, I have to say before we jump out of the ceremony scene, I loved Marjorie's dress. Oh yeah. It was so cool <laughs> that like, that part that was like draped on the ground, hanging behind her and everything looked really cool. It was just with like all the roses on the back Mm-hmm. And her necklace, if you notice, kind of resembles Sansa's mm. with like the little it has three teardrops. Oh, and cool. Sansa, Sansa's has more, but it it had like that kind of same teardropped look. And in the episode before when Elena was talking about the necklaces. Yeah. It had oh, to that's be. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to mention Marjorie's necklace really closely resembled the necklace that carried the poison to kill Joffrey. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very interesting coincidence. Another good line from that, um, that whole scene was when, um, let it be known that Marjorie of house Tyrell and Joffrey of the houses Lannister and Baratheon are one heart, one flesh, one soul cursed be he who would seek to tear them asunder. Ooh, you know, and then Elena, you know, it's a she who seeks to tear them asunder, but she does seem pretty cursed as her whole house is basically wiped out. <laughs> oh my gosh, know, good future. catch for sure. Um, I found it kind of interesting too that Joffrey is named of both the houses yeah. Lannister and Baratheon. <laughs> yeah, pretty funny. It's like truly. He's a, I mean, we know that he's a product of Jamie and Cersei. But right, but it, to on the paper, realm, he's a Baratheon. He's a Baratheon. And they list like, Lannister first. Yes. So I thought that was very interesting mm-hmm. from, like, did Cersei do that? Like, why would you do that? Because at this point, you're still trying to keep his... You're, they're still trying to keep that a secret, aren't they? Oh yeah, totally. And the interesting thing too is that they say Lan- they say Lannister first here, but then after he kisses the bride, and uh, a, ver- a variation of the Baratheon theme does play. Yes, it does. You're right. It totally does. Mm. So I just thought that was very interesting. And throughout the series, he wears a lion on his um, armor, like during the Battle of the Blackwater. True. He wears the lion. He's not wearing the stag. So it's it just kind of interesting. He's all that about House Lannister. Subconsciously, he knows. He knows he's a bastard. He knows He knows who he is. <laughs> he knows who his daddy is. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Sansa says to Tyrion, we have a new queen. And he says, better her than you. 
So totally being protective over Sansa here as well. Glad that she's not in the clutches of marital bond with Joffrey. <laughs> yeah, because he even says at one point um, before this, I am not necessarily in this episode. Um, she's not yours to torment anymore. Yep. Yeah, 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 totally. So he, it shows that he, he really does have Sansa's best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. He, and he is the one that helps get her clothes back, too, and Joffrey's stripping her and having Marin Trant beat her. Yeah, yeah. The Hound gives her his cloak. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Um, it just shows Tyrion's character. Yeah. You know, he's not a scumbag. She's a little girl. I mean, he, she's freaking 14, for Christ's sake. It's like, <laughs> she's... A little girl, you know, and she's endured a lot. She's watched her father beheaded. Her mother and father were killed by his family. Her she's brother been tormented. Was yeah, her she's little been brothers torment- were burned, as far as she knows. As she knows, yeah. I mean, tormented relentlessly by Joffrey. Exactly. So I think Tyrion, whether I mean, although he's married to her, and I'm sure has some, you know. She's a beautiful girl, you know, like it's hard not to admit that even at her young age and him being older, but he feels the sense of need to protect her. And Mm -hmm. I mean, whether or not he has any type of attraction to her, he's married to her. He feels like it's his duty to do that. And I, it shows what type of character Tyrion is. Yep, definitely. Next scene, we have Tywin and Olena walking through the gardens. Do you have any notes on that one? Yes. Let me find them in my 40 pages of notes here. (laughs) It's pretty funny. Um, He's like a bit much, wouldn't you say? Talking about like the extravagance of the wedding. And she's like, it feels proportionate to the expected extravagance. And he says, people who spend their money on this sort of nonsense tend not to have it for long. And the way they're, they're going back and forth, I, I have written down, get a room, you old coots. <laughs> that was kind of funny. And uh, that's sure. when she says, you ought to try enjoying something before you die, like like you mentioned before. Might find it suits you. Not now, Mace. You stupid old Mace. <laughs> <Shows up. laughs> I'm ta- Tywin and I are, ta- are speaking. Yeah. Like, get out of here, you oaf. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was just a funny little uh, little scene there. And she, um, he's like, I'm not worried about the uh, the Iron Bank, you know. And she's like, we both know you're smarter than that. And the Iron she, Bank doesn't she say the Iron Bank will have its due? Yeah, which is, and she she adds that they how they love to remind everyone almost as much as you Lannisters with your debts. And uh, we don't really get a lot of that on the show. But like the Iron Bank always getting its money is a theme that's pretty, you know, it's repeated in the books. Like they never go without getting paid back. They always get paid back, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually kind of echoed in the later seasons because Cersei does pay back the debts of the throne to them. Yeah. Yep. They're like, we've never had this lump of, you know, this lump sum paid back all at once. Yeah. She's like, my brother is you know, guarding it himself. And that's actually the loot train battle. Yeah. That's what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. So this is sort of like setting up the mantra for the show. And we sort of hear it more frequently from this point on as the iron bank becomes more of like a a character. Stannis visits them, gets a big loan from them and everything. So the iron bank does come into play more and they're sort of setting it up here 
for that. But the fact that, that how she like talks about how they love to remind everyone, it's sort of like a th- like a little thing for book readers because <laughs> that's something that's sort of like smashed into your head, like oh, the other awesome. sayings in the shows, which is pretty funny. It's kind of funny too, actually, in the the preface of the show because, um. They end up sending Mace over to Bravos to talk to the Iron Bank. Yeah. And that's how what's his face? Sir Marin Trance yep, gets, gets to Bravos and he gets killed by Arya. Yeah. So nice little nod there. Yep. Did you notice that she was holding something in her hand? Oh, during the, the stroll? Talking? No, I missed yeah. that. I wonder what it yeah, was. She was like fiddling with something in her hand she was holding her Ooh. palm or her elbow was kind of at like a right angle and she was holding her palm upwards and her fist was closed but this was before she took the pecked, poison before she took the poison so i was pecked. curious if, <laughs> before she pecked the poison <laughs> pecked the poison <laughs> yeah so i was kind of curious maybe yeah interesting what she might have been holding or fiddling with i mean it might have just been nothing but Oh, the um, other interesting thing about the Iron Bank is that obviously they're based in Bravos, and that's where the faceless men are from. So if the Iron Bank is so like good at getting their dues all the time, they probably have like an army of faceless men that do shit for them. Probably. How scary I, is that? They could have people planted all scary. over the place. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I loved their little. I love their um, anytime Tywin and Elena are together. I find they're they play a game of words. Oh yeah, for sure. Remember the one time Elena goes in to meet Tywin and he's scribbling something down on a paper, and then the, Elena goes to meet Cersei and she's pretending to scribble something, and yes. she, she's like, "Don't play that game. You're not writing anything. You know, it worked for your yes. father, but <laughs> nobody's gonna buy it from you, Cersei." <laughs> Put the pen down, dear. We both know you're not writing anything. Hilarious. Totally. I like I like the, the interactions that Elena and Tywin have. They're kind of fun to watch on screen together. Two great um, performers, so that adds Absolutely. to it for sure. Absolutely. So an interesting note about the shooting of the Purple Wedding is this kind of entire scene where... We have kind of like two-on-two interactions at the actual wedding. It all happened simultaneously. So they had like while Loris and Jamie, Jamie kind of bump into each other. You see Brienne walk behind them towards, towards Joffrey Cersei. and Marjorie. Yeah, and oh. so it's all being filmed at the same time, and it was wow. meant to be that way. So it looked fluid, like. What would happen if Jamie and Loris like actually bumped into each other while um, Brienne walked up to give her, you know, congratulations to the couple? What would happen? You know, it would pan over to like Loris and um, Oberyn, you know, making oh, eyes yeah. at each other. <laughs> that was hilarious. And so, kind of that whole interaction from a filming perspective was all simultaneous because the director wanted it to flow as if we were just seeing bits and pieces of so it's it like all together and they like were all interacting with each other. Going on, so yes. That's yes, really so cool. He didn't really like, they didn't break it up and film like one scene at a time. Mm-hmm. 
it was all filmed together because they wanted the audience to feel as if it was live. You time. were there. Yeah. And so you do, you see when Laura says to Jamie, you know, like, or when Jamie says to Loris, like, you know, you're never going to marry her. And Loris goes, well, neither will you. <laughs> Zing. Yeah. Cue Brienne. And Brienne walks over and starts Yeah, they're with both Cersei. basically being accused of loving somebody. You know, like, uh, Loris basically accuses Jamie of being in love with Cersei there. And then Cersei basically accuses Brienne, like, does accuse Brianna being in love with Jamie and neither of them have a reply. <laughs> exactly. And while you're watching Cersei and Brienne talk, you see across the way, Jamie looking at them. Like, I wonder oh, what they're talking about. Oh yeah. True. So it, it's about all that. very symbiotic. The way the, the filming was actually done to make it feel like you were beautiful. Yeah. It was really kind of cool. So a fly just flying around the party, catching bits of different conversations. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the sentiment that the director wanted. And I think I've watched that originally when I watched the HBO behind the game, behind the thrones, Mm -hmm. they interviewed the director and he said that he goes, I wanted it to feel very fluid. I wanted it to move as if you were there and you were just catching bits and pieces of conversation. Like, what would Loris and Jamie talk about? What would Cersei and <laughs> right. Brienne talk about? What would Oberyn be doing? Which, by the way, I loved Oberyn in this scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's like, hello. You know, and Tyrion thinks he's talking to him. But no, he's just reacting to that that, <laughs> that whore doing contortionist posing. <laughs> oh, and speaking of that contortionist, mm-hmm. I'm... Almost 100% sure Marini's that not the girl, girl, the Marinese not girl, and Pod walks <laughs> by her and like looks at her. Like, oh, I remember you. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So um, I didn't realize that till you started saying it. And I was like, oh, it clicked. Like, she's got to be the same girl that did the Marinese not. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I. Again, going back to kind of Cersei and Brienne, Cersei kind of rubs it in that rubs it in that Brienne has flipped from you know person to person to serve, and I think Cersei is having a really difficult time, kind of realizing that her reign as queen and is over, mm-hmm. and in the midst of her trying desperately to remain with some sort of power. She takes it out on Pycelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she does. Because, you know, Marge, Mar, it was clearly Marjorie's idea to give the leftovers to the poor. Yeah, she's all excited about it, too. Can we make the announcement? You know, like the announcement, like she has one thing that she's like looking forward to, you know, and Joffrey's like, everybody, my wife would like to say something. <laughs> but she gives Joffrey the credit for it. Oh, she gives Joffrey the credit for it. Right, right. So, she's she's good with that like PR stuff. She, you know, she's going to make herself look good, but she also knows that Joffrey hasn't like. If he was left to his own devices, he would have an abominable image. So she's going to try to like. She's going to try to salvage his image yeah. to protect her image, <laughs> and yeah. you know, Cersei walks up to her after that and says, you know, like job well done. Or I I don't remember the exact line, but she basically gave her this fake ass hug like you're such a you know a good role model blah 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 but then she goes over to Picel and 
in some type of desperation, she goes, the queen is telling you to give the leftovers to the hounds. Yeah, he's like, well, the, the queen said to do this. She's like, the queen is telling you to Exactly. <laughs> to do this. She's like, you're still my bitch. Listen to me. I'm still in power here. And she's having this internal kind of struggle with letting go of the fact that she's no longer in power really at all at this fleeting moment because Joffrey's still alive. He's married to this new (laughs) bitch from high garden (laughs) to quote (laughs) Cersei. And, um, you know, she, she's holding on to that last little bit of Picel, no matter what Marjorie is, no matter her place, at King's Landing, Pycelle's always going to do what Cersei says. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And this so, uh, this action draws a parallel between Cersei and Ramsay, also because oh, yeah. she's like feeding the hounds, and Ramsay like what's her face? Uh, Miranda wants to shoot um, Tansy in the head with an arrow because she says, "Oh, she's you know she's pretty. Can I put an you know she she thinks she's pretty. Can I put an arrow through her face, basically?" And Ramsay says something along the lines of, oh, we need to feed the hounds, you know? Like, and so... Oh, uh, gross. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> so they're both, like, you know, doing fucked up shit and feeding hounds, basically, in this episode. And they're both freaking crazy. So yeah. that that parallels there. Feeding hounds out of, like, um, like, a sadistic point of view, you know? For sure. And so then, then the scene cuts to... Cersei and Tyrion kind of walking together and Cersei mentions something about like small pleasures. And she's totally referencing the fact that she just defied the queen, the new queen (laughs) kept Pycelle under her kind of grasp as far as being a little minion. And then here pops in Oberyn (laughs) (laughs) and he rubs it in that she's no longer a queen anymore by saying, you know, to Alaria, oh, this is Queen. Oh, I'm sorry, Queen Regent. No, actually, Lady Cersei. Yeah. And, you know, so that just kind of like rubbed it in a little bit. And you could just see it on her face. And their dialogue was great about, you know, I can't say I've ever met a Sand before. And yeah. she's... You know, it's like, I have 10,000 brothers and sisters. And to Oberyn's point, bastards are born of passion. And being right. that all of Cersei's children are bastards, I thought that was quite kind of fitting for that for that moment. Yeah, totally. And the uh, another interesting thing, too, is remember how we talked about it, how it's sort of a slight to send um, Oberyn instead of Doran. Martell, who's like the the head, the leader of uh, of Dorne, it's a big yes. insult to bring a, a a bastard to a royal wedding, you know. So <laughs> he brings Ilaria Sand, and it's just like being intentionally even more disrespectful to the power structure at King's Landing, which is pretty hilarious. Absolutely, and you know, I, I like how Oberyn kind of mentions Mar- Marcella in this moment, and right. you know that. In other places, the rape and murder of women and children is considered distasteful. Um, you know, what a fortunate thing for you, former queen regent, <laughs> that your daughter, Marcella, has been sent to live in the latter sort of place. 
Yes, absolutely. And so, I mean, it's, it's nice to see that. And that truth rings because when we do finally see Marcella grown, she is, she's happy. She's at peace. She's in love. She's living a great life. And what Oberyn is saying at that moment is actually true. Yeah. And it's, it's sad how Ilaria sort of ends up betraying the, the memory of Oberyn by poisoning Marcella and making him essentially go against his word that Marcella would be safe in Dorne. Yeah, th- that's a very good point. It's really sad that she's but like I just, so clouded by emotion that she forgets the way she, she vengeance. should be vengeance. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But I do love that Oberyn's just twisting that knife in Cersei's side about oh, like yeah. no longer being the queen. And he's completely aware of what he's doing. But I don't think what he was aware of is that conversation right beforehand of her like clearly cersei's having a power struggle about it yep so, <laughs> so that makes it, it was just like funnier. great timing perfect yeah. timing and that's yeah. also that line about you know some places uh, rape and murder of women and children is considered distasteful that was like the money shot for tywin because tywin's standing there too you know it's exactly. like i wonder how long he's been waiting to, to say something like that to tywin oh actually i know since tywin had her his, his sister and children murdered (laughs) yeah actually it's kind of another good example of like the game of words i kind of call it it's like when they argue about word like over words and they're trying to outwit each other yeah this is a great scene for that it reminded me of the uh, the conversation that we played last episode with um um lena hetty on the jimmy kimmel show where they're going back and forth (laughs) it's It's pretty funny, you know. Bastards are born of uh, of passion, aren't they? We don't despise them in Dorne. No, how tolerant of you! I expected a expected as a relief, Lady Cersei, giving up your regal responsibilities. Wearing the crown for so many years must have left your neck a bit crooked. Uh, I suppose you'll never know, Prince Oberyn. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. So it (laughs) it was just great. It was just I love Oberyn. He brings such a flair to the he's he's a fresh character in this season he becomes a fan favorite so fast absolutely absolutely and i love i love his presence with loris because <laughs> they're they're both like oh yeah that was so they're funny. like hey <laughs> from across <laughs> the room <laughs> and loris is feeling it too yeah he totally Although gets Alaria that didn't alaria didn't uh like didn't even see what was happening because she was yeah, too busy stuffing the stuff in up on mouth. It. <laughs> yeah, so funny. Yeah, so I mean, as I mean, I know my number one is like I just chose it because I knew we had to talk about it. Yeah, I left it off so you could have it. <laughs> um, oh, thank you. You're so nice. <laughs> um, but so then enters. <laughs> the War of the Five Kings. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. You know, this this whole wedding is so distasteful and so tacky. <laughs> and it's so clearly like everything that Joffrey wants, because this is it's just such a an epitome of his personality. Yeah. And I mean, like, but, you know, I I watched I watched this kind of embarrassing moment of you know like poor Tyrion is watching these mm-hmm. and he's like pay them all some you know like 20 20 gold 20 gold each when we'll it's, have to find another way to pay back the king dun, dun, dun. <laughs> exactly right but so I started I started kind of paying attention to 
the actual, I'll call it a play that was going on. And I found it very interesting because the, 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 the little person that plays Stannis goes after Renly, which is exactly what played out. Yep. Um, Rob goes after Balon Greyjoy and Joffrey's little person just kind of sits there watching, (laughs) (laughs) which is totally exactly how it all played out. But what's really funny about it is while it's literal that and probably intended that those four characters go after their specific enemies. I think what was unintended in Joffrey's mind is that he's sitting there looking like an idiot. Yeah, doing nothing. <laughs> he's not fighting anybody. That's so funny. <laughs> and uh, the characters themselves are designed from like Joffrey's imagination to like Renly's butt is hanging out, like taking a jab at his like as his gayness. Stannis is, you know, <laughs> but. <laughs> Stannis's front is inside Melisandre. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I missed that. Yeah. Um, oh, are, are you serious? Yeah, he's like. Yeah, I was trying to find something like to to, to mention about Stannis, and I like I didn't pick up anything like great, so I, I totally missed that. That's funny. What yeah, Melisandre's so, like? He's riding Melisandre. Is that yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. Balon's riding a kraken. His like yep. hair hairstyle is like super exaggerated. All crazy. Yeah. Joffrey's then, all clad in gold. But he's not doing anything. He's just yep. like wandering around, like ha ha ha, like yeah. frolicking about like he usually does. And Rob, of course, his gray wind's head sewed on. Exactly. So I just thought it was kind of a you know, literal representation of what the the War of the Five Kings looked like, but what I think Joffrey didn't realize is it left him looking like an idiot. Yeah, like a do nothing, like like late Walder Frey, basically letting everything play out and then coming in to take all the glory. Exactly, exactly. And so, I I love it because the the actors are kind of running around the tables, and I oh god, I forget which character the actor was playing but one of them hits Varys in the head with like something <laughs> Varys just is like again with his facial expressions <laughs> he's got the best he's just like impression. oh my god he's just so disgusted Connell and Hill is amazing it's his facial Varys doesn't have to say anything in any episode all he has to do is provide facial expressions he'd be a great pro- mime absolutely <laughs> I mean he kind of like closes his eyes and tips his head back and he has his arms crossed and then he like sits back up and opens his eyes again. And he's just like, why am I sitting here watching this? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I mean, kind of everyone's face is um, disgusted at that point because like Tommen, he's a little boy. He's kind of giggling about it because it is kind of comical. Like if you're looking at it from the eyes of a, of a small child, I don't think he realizes kind of what he's laughing at. And then he Until, realizes yeah, he's Tyrion. sitting next to Tyrion and he's like, oh, shit. And that's the difference between Tommen and Joffrey, too, is that Tommen gives a shit about people's feelings and about what they think. You know, it's kind of illustrated pretty well. Yeah, he has a soul. Yeah. So I just thought that that was kind of a an, a, a funny scene, but a very telling scene about kind of Joffrey's 
immature sense of humor, his his taste level, his classlessness. Yep. But also, he's trying to make fun of all these kings that are opposing him. But really, he's the king that's done nothing. That's he's so just great. kind of lucked out. And then, fast forward slightly to... Tyrion ends up mocking Joffrey about leaving the Battle of the Blackwater. Oh, so again, yeah. it's very telling that Joffrey clearly has done nothing to be in this position that he's in. And, you know, why don't you tell the 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 fine people here of your valor on the battlefield of the Blackwater? And I mean, Joffrey knows what he did. Yeah, which is run and hide. Run and hide. So, and I love this hide, because... Kids, hide, your wife. Yeah, and I mean, Tyrion has such a way with words, again, like this game of words kind of theme that's coming oh, yeah. through this He's episode. He's one of the best players of that, for sure. He, he does such a great job of telling Joffrey what an asshole and coward he is without giving Joffrey anything really to punish him over. Mm-hmm. Except for except for saying that, <laughs> insinuating that Joffrey might get raped by the uh, the horny little um, Joffrey. Oh, yeah. this it would be a tragedy for the king to lose his virtue hours before his wedding night. I was like, oh, and that's that's uh, Tyrion's thug life moment where the the glasses and the blunt. But again, it's like nothing punishable by death. Like Joffrey can't like lose his like marbles over that statement because it's not harsh enough to right, take harsh right, right. action but it's an insult enough that people get that it's an insult that was so. such a great moment oh one other thing i wanted to mention about how Tyrion says to pay each of the dwarves uh, 20 gold i felt like that was sort of like a meta moment because uh Tyrion, or the actor peter dinklage throughout his life he's consistently refused to play like goofy like dwarf roles like like elves yes or like munchkin yes. type things you know what i mean so he's he's somehow managed to to play serious roles his his whole life which is really respectable so he, he it's like Tyrion feels bad for the dwarves that are out there doing that Dinklage feels bad for the for the dwarves that are playing the goofy like dwarf roles, basically, you know. So I felt it was like sort of like a meta, like thank you guys for putting up with this bullshit, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great parallel because you know what's kind of funny is ironically Peter Dinklage is in the movie Elf. Right. Call me Elf one more time. Yeah, exactly. So again, they kind of played homage to his. He actually plays a very powerful man in that. Movie. Yeah, really, really powerful, like business executive. Yeah, I want my limo exactly seventy-two and a half degrees. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a great <laughs> so. role. Oh, interestingly too, um, did you see Avengers: Infinity War? Okay, I will be honest and say no, I have not seen it yet, but my husband has. Okay, well, it's not really a spoiler, but Dinklage is in that, and he plays a giant. Are you it's serious? Fucking great. Yeah. You know, like uh, every once in a while, Shay will call him like my giant of Lannister or the, there's like illusions about short men, even small men can t cast tall shadows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's like we get to see Peter Dinklage as a giant in. Uh, That's in, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's great. He's like, like 10 times the size of Thor. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. That's so cool. Yeah, it's great. So where were we? 
So um, we were with Tyrion mocking Joffrey about oh, yeah, leaving yeah, the yeah. battle. <laughs> this was but a poor imitation of your own bravery on the field of battle. Yes, I oh speak as a first-hand witness. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, I feel like you know, this is kind of leading up to Joffrey's death and we're as an audience, we're getting kind of a final reminder of just what kind of a asshole Joffrey is. Yep, they just had to rub it in one more time. Pouring wine on his uncle, you know, clearly. So brutal. This episode could like equally be titled like the torment of Tyrion because he's just being tormented the whole time. And he does such, I mean, Tyrion has, you know, a breaking point. We see that when he's on trial for the murder of Joffrey and and Shay comes up and testifies. He does have a breaking point and he does such a great job of controlling his he's very careful with his words, but he gets his point across and he clearly is upset but maintains composure. And so it just shows what a strong individual Tyrion is. Absolutely. Very um so one of my other notes is when you know, they're having their stare off and he's like, I said, Neil. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, you can see in the background, Marjorie is like desperate to find some type of distraction. Yeah. She's so embarrassed. I mean, she's her role essentially moving forward. If Joffrey were to survive is to control control. (laughs) this maniac. Yeah. And so she's like kind of, she has this look of, distress on her face and thank god for pigeon pie (laughs) oh look the pie yeah yeah. i mean it's just like and everyone looks and that's when (sighs) slips the drink you know slips the thing in the drink everyone's distracted by joffrey using his new valyrian steel sword to bash the shit out of a fucking pie and i love that the pigeons are not supposed to die in the pie (laughs) (laughs) there's like all these dead pigeons in it so I thought that was just a great kind of, again, ta- tacky, tasteless, <laughs> like, moment of this yeah, wedding. It sh- <laughs> shows you just, like, the way that Joffrey handles business, you know? Casualties ab- abound. It's pretty funny. The torment of Tyrion is brutal, though, how it just keeps escalating and escalating. First, he calls him out saying, you know, there's... There's got to be someone else out there. You know, surely there are others who still dare to challenge my reign. Talking about, you know, little Joffrey in the Battle of Five Kings. Uncle, you know, and he just keeps insisting on humiliating him further and further. Um, he's like, I'm sure they brought a spare costume, you know. And oh, Tyrion, like, self-deprecates, saying, like, oh, I would, you know, one taste of combat was enough for me. I'd like to keep what remains of my face. And... Uh, <laughs> After he tells Joffrey he should fight him and says, but you might get, you know, violated, basically. <laughs> You'd lose your virtue. Jo- that's when the like the whole place goes silent and Joffrey picks up his wine glass and walks around the back of the table and just slowly pours it right on Tyrion's head and just escalates from there. And the re- the watching everybody's re- reactions are really interesting because, like... Um, like Elena looks horrified, Marjorie looks horrified, Sansa even looks like 
horrified. She feels like sad, I think. She's yeah, just this is like, like when the sympathy is starting to build and it builds yeah. to the point where she picks up the goblet to give it back to Tyrion and like stands And she gives up for him, him like this look of you know I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't exactly. deserve this, you know, like you and may be a Lannister, but What's really funny too is Cersei Loving has it. like this crazy kind of smirk on her face. Yeah, even Tywin because too. She likes watching Tyrion be embarrassed. Loves and it. And while she knows her son is crazy, she does she does like to see her little brother get this type of treatment. Yep. So we move through, and now they're eating pigeon pie, and Tyrion <laughs> is trying pie. to sneak off. <laughs> yeah. This pie is dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Tyrion's clothes are all wet. And he's, you know, Sansa's like, please, can we leave? I think not only is Sansa at this point, like, feeling embarrassed for Tyrion, she's feeling embarrassed for herself. Because I think Sansa's still kind of a young, you know... I don't want to say selfish, but she is kind of selfish. She's, she's always been proud. kind of selfish. Yeah, and so she's thoroughly embarrassed that her husband is being treated this way. She right. wants to get the on hell her. out of town. Yeah, yeah she's totally. done. She's done. And and uh, during the battle also, the Battle of the Five Kings, when uh, there's a funny part, Loras had enough too. He <laughs> he like pulls his chair back and storms off after yeah. uh, after what, after Renly's sort of being That's violated. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> And he's just like, that was me. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, so they're trying to sneak off and, you know, he goes, uncle. And he goes, I, you know, I would just like to change out of these wet clothes. And again, to rub it in, Joffrey goes, you're perfect the way you yeah, no, are. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and so then we get to the scene of him choking. Ooh. And I love the moment where clearly, you know, he's kind of coughing. It's kind of tense. Marjorie's trying to figure out what's going on. And then... There was almost a fake out where we thought he was, like, choking once. And then it turns out that he was just, like, had, like, a, a like a, a light bulb went off and he decided to mess with Tyrion some more. Remember that? When he first takes yes. a bite of pie and, like, his face kind of, like his eyes widen and you think, Oh, what's happening? And then he just turns and starts talking to Tyrion. I thought he was getting poisoned beforehand. It was like, they, they pretended oh. he was getting poisoned and like, it was like a fake out. And then they actually did it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So he starts coughing and then he starts, you get that like panicked look on his face and Marjorie realizes, Oh, he's choking. He's choking. Yeah. He like looks like wild eyed at Marjorie and they like make like eye contact breathe. for a second. Yeah. First he's like, <laughs> It's nothing. <laughs> yeah, but what I found really interesting is after Marjorie says he's choking, really, like, no one goes to rescue him. Uh, <laughs> it's, that's funny. Except Jamie, like, barrels through a couple people. Like, his real dad shows up and and Cersei, uh, like, runs down, too. But it's delayed. Yeah, she pushes Marjorie out of the way. There's, like, a delayed moment. Like, Tywin doesn't go. Tyrion doesn't jump in i mean Tyrion's kind of looking at him like what's going on and i feel like there's kind of a duality going on first is there's people are trying to figure out what's really happening what's happening with joffrey is he really choking what's going on 
processing this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Second duality is he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, who wants to help an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> right. And even his, it's, it's funny, his, his killer, Olena, yells, uh, help the poor boy. <laughs> Idiots. Help your king. Idiots. Help your king. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny that the killer is like shouting, like yelling out, covering her ass. You know, it's so yes. funny, man. And who would ever expect an old lady you know, so oh, she's. I always suspect the old ladies. Oh, it's... oh my gosh! <laughs> uh oh! <laughs> Got to watch out for those those old ladies. Yeah. So I mean, it's the scene is. So I feel like there's a lot going on here from a feelings standpoint because from an audience perspective especially first-time viewers, this should be a fairly triumphant moment. Like, this asshole character is finally dying. Yep. But we have this situation where you have Jamie running up. Who we've developed sympathy for. Yeah, we have Cersei, who the only... Like, I've talked about this in previous podcasts. The only kind of relatable quality she has is being a mother yeah her one redeemable trait (laughs) yes and now they are witnessing their their oldest son dying in their arms they can't do anything about it and while we've come to find some humanity in jamie we can't really seem to find any humanity in joffrey or cersei but in this moment you have a a helpless son grasping at his mother for help. Yep. And this mother cannot do anything to save her son's life, which is all you parents out there, you know what I'm talking about. You would do anything to save your child's life. Yeah. And it's like, no matter how horrible they are as people or characters, what we see in that moment is a a helpless little boy and a a terrified mother, you know? Yes. Witnessing the, the worst possible thing a parent could ever dream of ever. It brings out this humanity in these very unrelatable characters. Mm -hmm. And so what is a fairly triumphant scene from the, perspective of Joffrey this asshole is finally dead you you are kind of left with this sadness of watching a a son and a mother struggle through this moment right so I, I I loved kind of that duality I think Lena Headey and uh, Jack Gleason really, really did a phenomenal job with that. Yep. And it's crazy too how like Joffrey's condition keeps accelerating and accelerating. Like first he can't, he's choking and then he can't talk and he can't breathe and then he's crawling and then he's throwing up and then there's blood coming out of his right and nostril. And now he's turning purple. Yeah, and then and... there's blood coming out of his left nostril. <laughs> and then he's like pointing at Tyrion like the like the evil it's monkey so in the closet and family guy. <laughs> you know and so i find it kind of ironic that this wedding is dubbed as the purple wedding (laughs) well it's because purple is a royal color and it's a royal wedding but it's also 
a purple wedding because Joffrey his face is purple, purple in this moment. So yeah, that's great. The, you know, the funny part too is how he like like his last oh. breath is like a squeak because his throat is like so close. And it's like horrible, but it's also it's kind of horrible. Funny. Yeah. It's hard to watch. Like as much as I hate, I hate Joffrey. I hate his character. It's really difficult to watch that scene. And I think it's because we have really phenomenal actors. I mean, mm-hmm. um, oh, what's his first name? Coster Waldo is his Nikolai. last name. Nikolai. Nikolai does a great... I mean, they are helpless parents. They are helpless parents watching their firstborn son die in their arms. I mean, he's the Kingslayer. He's a seasoned knight. Cersei is a heartless bitch that would do anything to anyone to save her her family, and they just can't do anything about their son dying in their arms. And while it's victorious in the fact that, yes, Joffrey is hated, it's exciting to see him kind of get what he deserves. Mm -hmm. And they were so smug about the Red Wedding, you know, and this is like swift justice for that. And um, Catelyn's widow's wail at the end of uh, the Red Wedding is sort of mirrored by Cersei here when she sees Joffrey pointing at Tyrion and she's like, he did this. He poisoned my son, your king. Take him, take him, take him. And she starts screaming, take him. Because she's like angry. I mean, it's so typical Cersei. It's like she's she's going to skip the grief because there's like the seven stages of of coping with it. She's skipping sadness and going straight to anger. (laughs) I mean, it's like instantaneous and i love the dynamic also like Tyrion is caught like with his pants down <laughs> like kind of yeah. situation like he's picking up this goblet clearly realizing that s- this goblet had everything to do with what just occurred and that means like people should have noticed that like he's picking it up and examining it realizing that it's poison if he did it he wouldn't need to do that exactly you know? but then you know I also loved Tywin in this scene. We get a he very looks mad. short. He's realizing that someone has taken a hit out on his family in public. Mm-hmm. This is a big deal. Oberyn has just come to town. They just had a dialogue about. You know, like their little game of words about you referencing know, the past referencing deeds. death and path exactly the past and you know the, the, the camera does it, it blips on Oberyn for just a second. Yeah, we know that's that true. he's first in poisons. Yeah, he yeah he's great with poisons. Um, so it, it's it's a great just scene of reactions yeah and it's a perfect storm of potential suspects like everybody around there has a motivation <laughs> One totally way and then sansa's gone <clears throat> yeah which makes Tyrion look suspicious makes yeah it makes him look even worse and we, we all we, know we find that out that dantos knows a lot about this plot like he knew enough to like get her out of there like we gotta go if you want to live we gotta go now oh know? yeah i mean he's like totally in the minutiae of what is going on yeah. here and you know it, it's like joffrey is hated uh, tywin knows that cersei knows that jamie knows that everybody at that table knows that 
and they're in a public place. This could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. It could have been a nobleman. It could have been someone at that table. It could have been a, a guest that seized this opportunity. It could have been one of Varys's little spiders. It could have been anybody at this point. And I think that's partially the reason Cersei turns immediately to Tyrion. And it was like, you did this. Like, you killed the king. Like, take him, take him, take him. And she wants to immediately place blame because I think it for her, it's just too much to process that it could be more than one suspect. And she has to find some type of rock to hold on to that. It was Tyrion. He did it. Now I can take my vengeance out on something because clearly she's not going to go through sadness first. She's going to go straight to anger oh, yeah. and revenge. <laughs> Man, yeah, it's crazy too. Sansa could easily be considered a suspect um, after the way she was treated, <laughs> you know, and uh, her totally. swift exit. And we we didn't really mention it before, but during the, the little war of five kings that was occurring, um, after Rob was killed and decapitated, Joffrey started, little Joffrey started humping the wolf's head. Yes. You know, and Sansa had just this blank, like, look, like, she's like, she was looking into eternity, like, through that whole thing. Like, it was pretty brutal. She looked like she was just trying to not to cry, you know? I know. I know. It's just, the whole scene is just horrific. And it's, it's divine justice that, you know, Joffrey died in this, showing kind of his true character kind of at his worst, but you, you are kind of left with that last image of him as being like, Oh, that was hard to watch. Mm -hmm. You know, at least that was my take on it. I, I wasn't necessarily, I was glad that he was dead, but at the same time, it was again, kind of a long and gruesome and difficult death <laughs> yeah. to watch. Yeah, definitely. Sure. They're good at giving you conflicted feelings, you know? Yeah, exactly. Great. Exactly. So um, one note, one, one more note. This is my last note on the <clears throat> purple wedding is there at this, to this point in the series, there were more principal characters in this one scene than ever before. And if I'm oh. not mistaken, the next scene with this many principal characters is in season seven when John and Danny go down to King's Landing to meet Cersei. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, a lot of people in one place at one time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will also make one other note that this is the first major event that doesn't happen in episode nine of a season. True. Yeah. This is episode two taking us off guard <laughs> right at the start of a season. This is like a climactic moment and it's happening at the very beginning. Yeah. Of the season. Everybody usually uses the first eight episodes to toughen their skin so they can handle episode nine. <laughs> it catches <laughs> totally. us off guard this time. Um, one thing that I wrote down was the conversation that Brienne has with Cersei where she mentions that Jamie saved her life um, more than once, which is interesting. So there's the bear pit and um, prevented prevented her from being raped and probably yes. killed by all those guys. So that's pretty cool. And then we find out that, um, you know, Cersei says, she says, I don't serve your brother, your grace. She says, but you love him. 
and Brynn's like taken aback and basically admits that she loves Jamie with her silence. But mm-hmm. it's it, it must mean that her love is like all the more powerful and just the fact that she loves him is more impactful because she used to hate him. You know what I mean? So right? something like Seriously. really happened that like changed her the way she thinks about him and it's it's powerful that her emotions could be changed that drastically in regards to the Kingslayer. Um, I think that moment happens in the bathhouse. Yeah, totally. They see each other naked, you know, and that's all that really matters. They're naked. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And, and they're and truly though, they're naked, so they're very vulnerable. Both of them are vulnerable. Yeah, and it represents like how they're like laying their souls on the line, you know, like Yeah, they're uh, Jamie is under a an, an infectious fever. Mm-hmm. And is bearing very vulnerable information to, I mean, I, I don't want to call her a stranger to Jamie at, this, that, at that point in the season, but he certainly doesn't have like a trust with her uh, yeah, to divulge such um, vulnerability. Yeah, nowhere even close. It was only because of his fevered state. Exactly. And I think he was very hurt by her judgment because he sees her as being an honorable person. But it brings them closer together, and I think he like is glad exactly. that he got it off his chest eventually and everything, you know? Yeah, and then the fact, like you said, that he saves her a couple of times. I- I'm not sure if it's necessarily like in love, love, but she loves him because they had a lot of close moments. He saved her life. Mm-hmm. He was vulnerable with her. He allowed her closed mind to kind of open a little bit to stop kind of maybe prejudging people based off what you hear. Yeah, true. That's a good point as well. You know, so it's like there, I think there's totally different levels of love. I mean, there's love like in love, like how I love my husband, but there's lots of different types of love out there. Like I love my friends. Right. Because they help me grow. I love lamp. (laughs) I love lamp. I love carpet. (laughs) I love carpet. (laughs) But you get my drift. It's like, I love them because they allow me to grow as a person. Right. There's like fraternal love versus like romantic love. So it's in this moment when she, when Cersei goes, but you love him. I think Cersei's meaning in love. And I think Brienne is responding with, she can't deny that Cersei's Verb, like verbal technical question is love right, but she can't so like she articulate it properly the- yeah I think she doesn't I mean maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm reading it totally wrong I think I don't she think loves Brienne's him in love with him oh really yeah, you think I she's in love with him yeah yeah I think so oh interesting mm-hmm. interesting okay I might have to rewatch that to I, got, like, I think a, she's surprised that Cersei figured it out from like no vir- virtually oh. no information, and she's like, "Oh my god! Like, how do I'm I embarrassed to run away." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, oh god, your like, grace. I, I've heard that Cersei probably loves him too. You know, so this is awkward. <laughs> awkward. Yeah. Moving on. Your grace. <laughs> Exit <laughs> stage left. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, I totally see that. Actually, I took it. A totally opposite way which is interesting i took it as but you love him she can't answer it 
flustered because she wants to correct her, but doesn't have like the right terminology to express that it's not exactly like, romantic what love and it's too long of a story to express in that moment. And she's right. also addressing the, the, the former queen. So she doesn't want to get too like in detail. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I totally see it your way too, actually, now that you break it out like that. That's funny. cool oh joffrey is such a scumbag there's that moment where brienne (laughs) introduces herself to joffrey and marjorie as you mentioned um loris is talking jamie brienne goes up to marjorie and and (laughs) and joffrey and and joffrey thinks that she's the one that killed renly right Mm -hmm. you're the one who put a sword through renly baratheon that's not true, my love. Brienne had nothing to do with it, which is interesting because Marjorie sticks up for Brienne almost like as if she believes the crazy shadow demon story. <laughs> right. But she knows Brienne pretty well. She knows Brienne didn't do it, you know. And then uh, Joffrey responds, a shame. I'd knight the man that put an end to that deviant's life. And he kind of like, <laughs> like has this like diva like head motion and his, his hand is like propped up as he's leaning on his elbow and he's like, m- like, picking his fingers together or something and he just looks like the biggest d-bag on the planet at that moment. <laughs> you know like he's like oh he's just oh the worst <laughs> he is the worst it's true it's, it's such a true statement it's great it's great though <laughs> yeah so i think i think that's all my notes on the purple wedding do you have anything else you want to add I mean, it's such a big, it's such a long scene because it's so, like I said earlier, it's like so fluid. It's yeah, there's so much. I mean, I'm looking through it, seeing if there's anything. I think it's, I guess, worth mentioning um, a little more detail about Jamie and Loris's conversation, okay. <laughs> which is hilarious because he's like, he, he thinks he's like gonna totally catch catch Loris off guard here, and I don't know what he's thinking. He he's jealous of Loris. Cersei's jealous of Brienne. You know that. These people are both like potentially going to get with their their special incestuous partners, incestuous partners. So Jamie, like breaking his silence of like normally he wouldn't say anything that could be conflated as him being in love with Cersei. You know, he goes up to Loras. If you were to marry Cersei, she'd murder you in your sleep. If you somehow managed to put a child in her first, hinting that he's gay, you know, so he's probably not going to really try be trying to so somehow if you put a child in her first she'd murder him too long before he drew his first breath luckily for you none of this will happen because you'll never marry her and then loris's response and neither will you <laughs> i know classic. it's so great zinger totally zinger got him there. for sure um there's one point too uh where the the bear and the maiden fair started playing at the wedding, which I thought was kind of funny. And the band Sigur Rós is playing the Reigns of Castamere. Um, I guess they're like a pretty famous like Icelandic band or something. Too slow for my taste. But um, I was given like a bunch of their records at one point. Oh, lot, really? Yeah, they got a lot that's, of music. That's kind of cool. Um, uh, I find it interesting that the Reigns of Castamere play at this wedding too. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> And also, I know I mentioned it back in the Red Wedding episode, the Reigns of Castamere that we recorded with the um, with the guys. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Travis and Johnny and Sir Patrick. What up? Um, I mentioned that there's like this kind of generic wedding music that plays. Right. I found it. 
Oh, you did. I, okay, I, I it found plays a video in the sweating it. too. I know for a fact it plays in the sweating <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> there so. are people posting about it online. Like, what is this this song that plays at all three of these weddings? And it doesn't seem to have a name anywhere. And no place really seems to have a title for it. But there is a YouTube video that has it. You know. Yeah, it's like do 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 like something like yep, that, and yep. it just kind of keeps going on and on, but. I kind of giggled at that because I heard it. In right, this... right. Yeah, stock festival music. I'm almost positive it plays in Tom and, and Marjorie's wedding as well. And we'll I'm pay attention excited. For it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be paying attention for it for sure. Oh, speaking of the Reigns of Castamere in this case, the when it cuts to black after Joffrey dies, the Reigns of Castamere plays. <laughs> yes. And it's almost like, it's like kind of sardonic in this contest. Like, like... <laughs> How um, just that the fact that usually the Lannisters win the day, but here are Lannisters dying, you know? Yeah, so, and like, being uh, accused. Yeah, so it's like sort of mocking, like it's being played mockingly, you know, after the death Absolutely. of the Lannister, which is like yes. sardonically, which is cool. I, a neat word. So that was kind Absolutely. of fun. So I think that's, I, I certainly don't think I have any more notes I've gone through my two and a half pages on my number one. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think I have any more on that uh, on the red wedding or purple wedding itself either. All right, so let's uh, go over some of our other notes. What do you have? So I have. I liked the scene where Tyrion and Varys are talking. And I liked how Varys kind of, you know, stood up to Tyrion and was like, I'm not going to lie about Shay. Right. Yeah. He tells him, like, the truth. <laughs> yeah. No one weeps for spiders or whores. I don't have a, a legendary brother to protect me. <laughs> right. Or a sellsword. You know, and it's like, have you ever known your father for making an idle threat? Point taken. I was, oh, what I have down. Uh, why don't you ask House Rain and Tarbeck? Oh, never mind. And Stark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, Stark. Too, no. mm -hmm. So I, that really shows Varys's, his strength. I mean, Varys is a pretty strong character as far as, I mean, we saw it at the very beginning of the series when he goes to... Um, to Ned, you know, it's like, I serve the realm. Yep. I That's who I serve, and I'm not gonna... He's been pretty consistent with that, too. Very consistent with serving the realm, and I know Sir not... Patrick is spinning in his, his chair right now, like, no! <laughs> Varys is a traitor! He's, he's a traitor! <laughs> we'll see, traitor. we'll see, Sir Patrick. We'll see, yeah, but I, I feel that you know, Varys is not going to give up this very coveted position that he's cl literally clawed and climbed his way up to. That's for sure. To yeah. lie to Tywin, of all people, Yeah. about a whore. Like, no fucking way. It's it not happening. I don't care who you are, Tyrion Lannister. I'm Your father is more powerful than you are. I'm not... I'm not putting my position in jeopardy to satisfy your love interest. <laughs> yep. Um, Tyrion had a pretty funny line too, right at the beginning of the scene. Varys says, 
breakfasting with the king? I'm afraid foreigners aren't welcome at such exclusive affairs. And Tyrion says, oh, to be foreign. <laughs> he like, <laughs> no. really doesn't want to be there. Classic. It's so true. Um, you know, and just, again, going along that kind of same vein, I, another note that I had is when Tyrion actually really does send Shay away. Right, yeah. Um, I know I mentioned it in my little, you know, notes about Shay and Tywin about like, what's wrong, my lion? Don't call me that. Yep. I'm afraid our friendship can't continue. Our friendship? <laughs> yeah, it's very diplomatic. It's very at least hard to start to watch. Yeah. Before you're a whore, you know. Yeah, and it's like, you know, how many men have you been with? 500, 5,000? 5, 5, and... I normally don't I, feel bad for Shay, but this is pretty rough. It's really brutal to watch because it's brutal to watch from both sides because yeah. we know that Tyrion loves Shay. And I think in this moment, in this scene, he he starts off trying to be kind of rational with her, like... You just need to go. You need to, like, leave. And I'm not going to try to hurt you to do it. Like, please just go. Mm -hmm. But then I think Tyrion comes to the realization that the only way Shay is going to leave is if he hurts her. Like, really hurts her. Yeah, and it sort of mirrors what was happening with Stannis when he's, like, sort of trying to justify out loud burning Axel Florent and everything. Tyrion doesn't want Shay to go, so he's trying to justify the difficult decision. First, he's like, he's like, well, you know, I need to uphold my vows to Sansa, and I need to do right by her, by her children. And then she's like, combats that, and uh, he sort of escalates to, you're a whore! You know, he's just trying to say whatever he has to say to convince himself that she needs to go. Yeah, and to, con- like, and to really hurt her, because... Like you said before, yeah, it's like definitely. kind of hell hath no fury, like a woman's scorn. You got to hurt a woman for her to get that way first. And in that moment, you your heart kind of breaks. At least my heart breaks for Shay. As much as I don't. Yeah, for sure. She's not one of my favorite characters. I find her annoying at times. But in this moment, I really feel her heartbreak because I truly do think that she loves Tyrion. Yeah, she does. I, I think so. And Tyrion loves her. And the only reason he's really sending her away is because Varys said that she got noticed. Remember? In the garden yeah. scene, we we kind of glossed he's over that. He's trying to keep her safe. That, he's uh, trying to keep her safe. Yeah. And it's... it's it, I think it's just as hurtful for Tyrion, too, because in those words, you can see it on his face. He's saying it, and he's like, oh, God, like, everything I'm saying to her, it's hurting me, too. It's hurting the both of them, because he doesn't want to hurt the woman he loves, but he knows that it's in her best interest and it's in his best interest if she leaves. Yeah, even Bronn thinks it's fucked up. Like <laughs> Bronn, who basically introduced Shay to Tyrion, remember at the yes, he like oh, acquired her. Oh, I totally her. forgot about that. That's and right. And so he, uh, yeah, Shay, he comes in. Bronn will escort you to your ship. You know, blah blah. And she turns around and slaps him. Imp slap. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so he like gives Tyrion a look, like oh, this is pretty fucked up, you know, <laughs> before he kind of well, chases her out. 
Yeah. And then he even says like something about like uh, during the Red Wedding when they're first talking, he's like, yeah, whatever you need to do to convince yourself the right. Oh, now go drink till it feels like you did the right thing. So yeah. even Bron doesn't think it was the right thing, you know? Well, and I think in that moment when she hit Bron, she was really kind of hitting Tyrion. Yeah, you know? definitely. It's like that just rage in her. It's like you're betrayed, you're hurt. It's like a, I mean, it's like an epic breakup. We've all gone through them, all right? It's heart, you're angry, you're embarrassed, you're sad, you're feeling all the love you have for that person. It's all in one moment. And then some person like goes to take you away and you're just like, fuck you. Yeah, right. <laughs> just kind of like slap them across the face and don't touch me uh, don't touch me slap <laughs> imp slap <laughs> <laughs> so i i just i really feel kind of for the both of them in this scene because they do love each other and yeah. my question is because braun is very certain to Tyrion at the purple wedding that she's gone yeah, although, well, he he says, you saw her board the ship, and he says, aye, she's on it. And then he says, you saw the ship sail away, and he changes the subject. No one knows she's there but you, me, and Varys. So he dodges the question. Oh, okay. And, like, you mentioned that Tywin had been calling for Shay to be sent to his chamber earlier. Yeah, So yeah. Shay's been compromised. Um, has Bronn been compromised as well? Like, what did he, does he... In, is he in on letting her stay? Is this a betrayal of Tyrion, or is he? Did he just not fulfill his duties entirely? Like he didn't watch the ship leave, or like did he like run to the whorehouse real quick? You know, like like I don't think he necessarily betrayed Tyrion, but he definitely wasn't completely honest about this whole scenario. He might and not have stayed the whole time to like watch her. Like she, he maybe he watched her board the ship, but didn't watch the ship take off. Yeah, because he's, yeah, instead of saying, yeah, I saw it go away, he's like, listen, nobody knows she's even there, but you mean Varys. So Varys could have had played some role in, um, you know, intercepting her before she really left or something like that, too, theoretically. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, though, because Varys wanted her to leave. Right, yeah, so I don't think he would have. But, I mean, Unless he was, yeah, talked to by uh, Tywin or something. Cersei has little birds. Littlefinger has little birds. I mean, it, yeah. it could have been kind of anyone because, I mean, clearly she never did leave. Right. She's there for the trial. I mean. Yeah. Whatever happened, it's brutal. Okay. You got any other notes you want to mention? No, I think that was it. I think All we right. covered everything really well. Killer. Yeah, it wraps it up for me, too. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back, guys. Stick with us. I hear people talking bad about the one true king, our great beloved Joffrey. Harping on the war he fights and griping about the way he ought to be. Now I don't mind you switching sides and fighting for a king that you believe in. 
when you're running down my Joffrey, man, you walking on the fighting side of me. You're walking on the fighting side of me. Running down a way of life that Lannisters have fought and died to keep. If you don't love him, fear him, let the song that I'm singing be a warning. If you're running down my Joffrey house, you walking on the fighting side of me. With some news about Game of Thrones. First, from Forbes, a collection of Game of Thrones single malts is coming by Carla Alindahau. <laughs> for those who can't wait until next spring for the eighth and final season of Game of Thrones, winter has come early thanks to a new collection of Diego single malt whiskeys inspired by the acclaimed HBO series. During a tasting this month, Ewan Morgan, Diego's master of whiskey, led us through all eight single malts, and several of them are certainly worth purchasing. A little backstory as to how these whiskeys were picked, Morgan explained. The whiskeys were all picked here in New York. Scotland sent over a large amount of samples to myself and a guy called David Graham, one of the internal Diego project leads, who had worked on this project. We sat in a room together drinking a lot of whiskey for multiple days. <laughs> the room smelled <laughs> phenomenal, but we probably didn't. <laughs> we walked out of there with a wish list of what we really wanted. We then got back to the team in Scotland and said, here are the whiskeys we want. They said no, and we said, please. And they said, okay, you can have a very, very small amounts of it. And so that's really how this project came around. Us sitting in a room with a wish list of whiskeys that we really wanted or whiskeys that we wanted to bring into the U.S. For example, a high-strength Kleinish, which is wonderful. And for the first time, you guys are getting a Royal Lochnager. So the HBO partnership has really been a phenomenal, phenomenal one for us and for me, especially, specifically because we got to take some of the best whiskeys available in Scotland and bring them to the market. It's an amazing collection we have here. And uh, as it stands, none of these whiskeys surpass a price of $70, which is not bad for whiskey. No, not at all. And I love the labels on them, too. They're really cool. Yeah, definitely. They. Uh, it looks like they're using the same bottles that Lagavulin uses, which is uh, my favorite whiskey at the moment. So interesting yeah. little sidebar. I, I might have to... Get me some whiskey. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Scottish, so you know I'll be drinking some. <laughs> hey, so am I. <laughs> nice. If it's no Scottish, it's crap. <laughs> we'll have to drink the whiskey on our on our podcast. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll turn into a shit show. I know. <laughs> All right. Um, from winteriscoming.net, Sean Bean, Nate a.k.a. Ned Stark, joined the rest of the cast for a Game of Thrones special by Dan Selk. Game of Thrones is the biggest show on the planet, and when the final episodes drop next year, you can bet they won't drop alone. We can expect more like the game revealed. The behind-the-scenes documentary series HBO put together for Season 7, and according to Sean Bean, Ned Stark, Conan O'Brien already shot a massive cast reunion show in Belfast about a month back. 
It was the last episode, so we all got together. It was good, he told The Hollywood Reporter. It was for season eight, the last one, so they decided to get all the characters together for a bit for this big show in Belfast, and he held, and he kind of hosted the evening. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Definitely oh my gosh, that would be that. awesome. <laughs> all right, let's move on to our Game of Thrones and history segment. From Ranker.com, Real Historical Figures Who Inspired Game of Thrones Characters by Trisha Soreas Murray. Oh, yay. Anne Berlin is Marjorie Tyrell, which I think is totally awesome because Natalie Dormer plays Anne Berlin in The Tudors, so it's totally fitting. <laughs> yep. Those who read the books know that Marjorie Tyrell was supposed to become Robert King Robert's mistress and eventually takes Cersei's place as queen. Those who just watched the show might look at Natalie Dormer and say, hey, she played Anne Boleyn on the Tudors. <laughs> <laughs> Readers and viewers who know their history probably realize that Anne Boleyn is indeed one of the real people who inspired Game of Thrones characters in the form of Marjorie Tyrell. Although Marjorie didn't end up marrying Robert Baratheon, Anne Boleyn married his real-life counterpart, King Henry VIII. Huh. Since Robert... Oh, that's so true, because we read that in an earlier recording. Right. That... That's right, okay. Since Robert was dead, Marjorie settled for his son, well, his highly illegitimate son, even though he was betrothed to Sansa Stark. She pushed a relieved Sansa out of the picture as quickly as Anne Boleyn replaced Henry's wife. <laughs> Marjorie probably would have lost her head just as Anne Boleyn did if Joffrey wasn't poisoned on their wedding day. But fortunately for her and everyone else, Joffrey died during the wedding feast. Marjorie had to restart the tedious process of trying to become queen again, but she found her way to the throne next to the naive King Tommen pretty quickly, proving to be really, really good at seducing Cersei's kids. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that is treason to talk badly about Joffrey. Right? Saying it's good for everyone that he died during the wedding. It's horrible. <laughs> William <laughs> Cecil, first baron of Burley, is Littlefinger. In a real rags-to-riches story, William Cecil, or Cecil, I'm not sure, was born into a simple life and climbed the social hierarchy, using his inherent abilities to think ahead and give good advice. Cecil grew to be one of Queen Elizabeth's most trusted advisors. The latter part of Cecil's legacy can be seen through Peter Baelish, a.k.a. Littlefinger, the biggest chess player on the board of the Seven Kingdoms. Born into a fairly low position, Littlefinger moved his way closer to the Iron Throne by talking and aligning himself with, the all, with all the right people. He acquired various titles like Master of Coin and Lord of Harrenhal, all through the power of speech. Well, that and a lot of scheming, because unlike the super honest Cecil, Littlefinger's loyalties ultimately lie with himself. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Francis Walsingham is Varys. Anybody who has watched the bevy of Elizabethan era TV shows <laughs> and films will be familiar with the, with the sneaky spy master who always seemed to be in the middle of everything. Francis Walsingham had a gigantic network that kept him in the know of everything that happened and made it easier for him to benefit from that knowledge. Although some of his actions were thought only to benefit him, he truly did a great job protecting his country. For the same reasons as Walsh Walsingham, 
Everyone's favorite eunuch, Lord Varys, is quite fond of his little birds. <laughs> Unlike the literal ravens that deliver messages, Varys's birds are mostly underprivileged children strewn around the country who reveal information for sweet treats. <laughs> it's hard not to be a little suspicious of someone who exploits kids for candy. <laughs> But the master of whispers always pulls through for a good for the good of Westeros. So far, anyway. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth I of England is Daenerys Targaryen. Queen Elizabeth I, you know, the Queen Elizabeth, brought peace, art, and prosperity to England throughout her reign, and she did it without a man by her side. Yeah, that's true. The Virgin Queen, they called her. Her Game of Thrones counterpart, Daenerys Targaryen, was briefly married to Khal Drogo and betrothed to the son of one of Meereen's grand masters for even less time, but she only suggested the engagement to win over the Meereenese people. Of course, her fiancé got Sons of the Harpied during the Great Games, so Danny truly managed to free slaves, gather supporters, and try to take her place on the Iron Throne by herself. As successfully in independent women both queens enjoyed the company of lovers but neither was willing to jeopardize her quest for domination by taking on a potentially dominating husband daenerys and queen elizabeth did what needed to be done without letting their emotions get in the way something that cannot be said about many male leaders elizabeth had had her friend and advisor robert Devereux executed for trying to orchestrate a rebellion behind her back Similar to how Daenerys banished Jorah Mormont of House Friendzone <laughs> twice <laughs> after she learned of his role as a spy. Both of these women were strong rulers and exemplified feminism during times when there was no such thing. Elizabeth had her navy and Daenerys had her, has her dragons, but both women had the same determination to change the world without compromising themselves. I'm part of this uh, this Facebook group, like a big like seventy thousand member the Song of Ice and Fire group. You might be a member of it too. Yeah, but I am. They, they don't allow, allow any talk of or mention of the friend zone. <laughs> How so ridiculous funny. is that? It's funny. That's hilarious. Definitely. Okay. Another strong woman for you. Yes, yes. Joan of Arc is Brienne of Tarth. I think we briefly mentioned correlations. Um, in our last episode together, too. Yeah. So, Joan of Arc is one of the most famous female warriors in history and is probably the inspiration behind all manner of fictional women heroes. <laughs> However, the similarities between Joan and Brienne of Tarth are more than superficial. Joan of Arc had to convince Charles VII of her worth, whereas Brienne had to prove herself to Prince Renly. Both Joan of Arc and Brienne preferred to wear masculine clothing, and both were most comfortable in a suit of armor whilst wielding a sword. Here's to hoping that Brienne doesn't share the same fate as Joan, who was burned at the stake in 1431. Damn. <laughs> That's rough. Oh, a slight correction to this article. It wasn't Prince Renly that she had to prove herself to. It was King Renly. Oh, that's right. King <laughs> Renly. <laughs> And his rainbow guard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you hear that? Caw, caw. <laughs> Sir Matthew of House Rep 
Killing a man at a wedding? What kind of monster would do such a thing? Man, Olena has a dark sense of humor. She's simultaneously giving her condolences to Sansa for the red wedding while removing the poison from her necklace to kill Joffrey at his wedding. I know it was always Elena and Littlefinger's plan to frame Sansa so she would have no choice to, but to leave with Peter. Ah, oh, that explains why they put the necklace on her. Oh, To the veil. Go. Good catch, Matt. Yeah. But, uh, but was Tyrion always supposed to be the collateral damage? It was a mighty big coincidence that Joff made him his cupbearer then. Not even Littlefinger could have foreseen that. When Joffrey is asking the crowd to name his new Valyrian blade, people suggest Terminus, Wolfsbane, and Stormbringer, in addition to Widow's Will. I'm partial to Stormbringer myself, as it also nods to his Baratheon heritage and the ancestral home of Storm's End. Yeah, good catch. I suppose it's better he didn't bring he didn't pick it since he is no has no Baratheon blood at all. <laughs> There's also um I think the old Baratheons had taken the title of Stormlord as well. Oh, really? Yeah, That's there cool. was a, a house, Dur- Durandon or something beforehand that were known as the Stormlords, but they ended up with, uh, the Brathians took their castle, Storm's End, after they were eliminated by um, Aegon the Conqueror, I think. And Orius Baratheon, the founder of House Baratheon, was a bastard half-brother of Aegon, or his, one of his bastard sons or something i can't remember exactly but that's how baratheons were like are an offshoot of the targaryen family oh interesting ramsey gets even more despicable in this episode when we see his second favorite pastime after after flaying prisoners (laughs) his new reek doesn't seem to enjoy it as much as his first one yeah that's true that's very true sir brian of house michael I was so happy when he died. I second that. <laughs> yeah, and I'll third that. Lady Lisa of House Sky, who is helping us with our website. Thank you, Lady Lisa. Widow's Whale, he names his sword and uses it to open the dry pigeon pie he washes down with the wine that was poisoned by his wife's family. Moments later, we hear a Widow's Whale, but not his own widow. <laughs> List of known poisons. Blind eye, basilisk venom, demon's dance, gray cap, heartsbane, manticore ventum, nightshade, sweet sleep, tears of lease, widow's blood, wolfsbane, and the strangler. Characters known to use poison. The caltrops, cranog men, the faceless men, maesters, the pureborn, the alchemist, Arya Stark, maester Cresson, Lysa Tully for Peter Baelish, Oberyn Martell, Ramsay Snow, allegedly, Tiana of Pentos, Tyene Sand, Tyrion Lannister, Visenya Targaryen, and Lady Effing Olenna, <laughs> Queen of Thorns, <laughs> indeed. That's awesome. Yeah. Good info there. Yes, absolutely. Lady Sarah Larkham says, Reek has a chance to cut Ramsay's throat when he is shaving him. The scene nearly mirrors when Catelyn's throat is slit at the Red Wedding. Yes. Yes. Totally. I picked up on that, too. That's awesome. Yeah. This episode features the Icelandic band Sigaros performing at the wedding and also the Reigns of Castamere in the post-show credits. Yep. Playing sardonically, which is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Lady Caroline de Gatineau, la Québécois Baroness of the Great White North, says, I felt sad for Shay when Tyrion broke up with her. I know she was a whore, but I'm sure she really loved him and her heart was really broken. 
Also, yes, the moment we all want to see again and again, Joffrey's death <laughs> for three entire seasons, and especially since Ned's death, we were all waiting for that, and we got served. Now, knowing what we know, it sounds so funny to hear Lady Elena saying, help the poor boy. <laughs> <laughs> Idiots, help your king. <laughs> yeah. Overall, a very great episode with a satisfying end. Totally. Agreed. Thanks for writing, Lady Caroline. Lord Richard Horsfield, best episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe uh, maybe Richard can get us some of that scotch in the original bottles. He's, he lives in Scotland. Yeah. And of course, I'm joking. I wouldn't do even it, know where it. to begin finding that. <laughs> What's up, Richard? All right, that's our show, episode 74. Thanks for listening, everybody, and a huge thanks to Lady Rachel for joining us again today. Of course, I love podcasting with you, Duncan, and look forward to our future episodes. Same here. It's going to be fun. (laughs) Next episode, we'll be covering season four, episode three, Breaker of Chains. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on the air. If you'd like to call, you can always call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739. If you'd like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. Oopslap! We're also on Twitter and Instagram at gompodcast. Give us a like on Facebook and an iTunes rating slash review. All right. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Bastards are born of passion, aren't they? We don't despise them in Dorne. No? How tolerant of you. I expect it is a relief, Lady Cersei, giving up your regal responsibilities. Wearing the crown for so many years must have left your neck a bit crooked. I suppose you'll never know, Prince Oberyn. A psychological effect on them... On them each that gives them a chip on their shoulders, which they oh, definitely. You know, express in various different ways. Ramsey flays people, Jon Snow sword fights and fucks wildlings or whatever. But <laughs> uh, what do you think? I think it's from the future. So you can see through all the aminal, a- aminals. Oh, she made Miranda jealous, you know, <laughs> so oh let's uh, torture her brutally. If you make it out of the woods, you win. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) A fine shot, master. I can't even imagine. It's like everything's in reverse. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like mirrored with each other. 
He knows he knows who he is. <laughs> he knows who his daddy is. <laughs> Get a room, you old coots. I know. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 